0: What are you planning to buy during Vinegar Syndrome's Halfway to Black Friday sale, kicking off in just two weeks, starting May 28th? As always, the sale means 50% off SRP on nearly the entire Vinegar Syndrome catalog, along with many partner-labeled titles. Plus, if you're planning to become a 2021 Vinegar Syndrome subscriber, this is your last chance. Their May lineup really offers something for everyone, from a new VSU release of the late 90s midnight movie classic Six-String Samurai, to two-box sets, and so much more. Their first installment is a three-volume collection celebrating the films of Mexico's king of exploitation cinema, Rene Cardona Jr., includes the worldwide Blu-ray debut of the nasty cannibal adventure film The Treasure of the Amazon. If you thought only Italians knew how to conjure up flesh-eating mayhem, think again. Also, televised terror collects three never-on-Blu-ray made-for-TV murder thrillers, Are You in the House Alone?, Calendar Girl Murders?, and Child in the Night. All three of these suspense and mayhem film mysteries are sure to be a nostalgic treat for 80s and 90s late-night TV memories. One of the wildest and most original comedies of the 80s, Surf 2, I actually am dying to see this, makes its worldwide Blu-ray debut, available for the first time ever in its original director's cut. Who can resist Eddie Deason, Zombie Surfers, and the Beach Boys?
1: I'm excited to see this.
0: Yeah, no, I heard from Brian that this kicks butt, so I'm excited. And that doesn't even scratch the surface with two secret titles, one of which is an ultra-gory UHD double feature, two new VSA releases, four new catalog slipcovers, and more. Remember, you can only get these exclusive discounts and amazing new releases on www.vinegarsyndrome.com during the sale May 28th to the 31st. Be sure to sign up today for the newsletter so you don't miss a single thing.
1: Tonight's episode is also brought to you by the podcast, A Night in Question. In 1995, a terrible murder rocked Seattle and was quickly forgotten. Now, 25 years later, Kate McGuire has moved into the very same apartment where this murder occurred. With her friends, Ted and Jeremy, Kate will attempt to unravel the strange events of the past and revisit those long forgotten ghosts. But some ghosts don't like to be forgotten, and the closer they get to the truth, the greater the danger they find themselves in follow the mystery on a night in question available on itunes spotify and other podcast directories visit a night to learn more In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusively, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code COLORS, C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Again, that is 25% off your Fangoria subscription with the code COLORS. Hello and welcome to this episode of Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Had to drop that because I turned in my finals this morning.
0: Ooh, doctor. All right.
1: Yeah, we are finished for the semester. What's up Elric Kane?
0: I'm kind of finished, but yeah, and I'm not a doctor, but that's okay. I don't that's need okay. to be a doctor. MFA. MFA,
1: Elric Kane. I'm
0: MFA. It's not not it's not quite milf, but it sounds like it. I'm MFA. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, that's how I'm rocking. Yeah, I'm almost done. I had some fun. We finished school. We had put our movies on a big-ass screen at the big movie theater from Blade Runner. felt pretty cool.
1: Oh, that's awesome, man. We were still doing our online screenings via Zoom, and there is just something rather, you know, kind of unclimactic about it that you've spent – because I'm doing it with my my – because I teach grad school – um, it's these, you know, students that this is the end of, like, their three-year grad school journey. And now I'm like, and now let's watch your short film on Zoom. And well, at least just-
0: you're, you're part of a tiny little school. It's okay. Like, yeah, <laughs> they'll get a better shot at next time. Good luck to that that little school of yours. <laughs> we have to go big. We're too tiny not to. Um, but, yeah, we and we had a fun screening last week. Uh, really, look, something I don't think everyone knows that is, is that if you missed one of our live screenings, even though you can't see the movie live our entire Q&A is put on YouTube. So all of this. And this one is particularly important, I think, because it's after Midnight Cast and Crew, and it's really just like a a class on how to make independent films.
1: Yeah, and we talk with um, Jeremy and Christian, the two directors. We talk with Dave Lawson and Bria Grant joins us. Um, And it really does just kind of get into like, how do you even just get, off the ground with you know deciding that you want to make your own indie feature how do you write something that you know is going to be budget friendly how do you kind of you know decide what needs to go and what needs to stay what makes it special what's your production value and then really kind of how you move forward with that kind of controlling everything everything that you can to make sure that it stays in a micro budget
0: and some harsh realities um, of independent filmmaking and finances and it's just it's good stuff and i i was very happy to notice i didn't necessarily understand that these all ended up on youtube until recently and i think it's really cool that people i mean some of our some of the ones we do for are, won't make as much sense like if we're just introducing a crazy movie and you don't see the crazy movie but this one particularly i think would be worth people checking out so that's for after midnight which is also on arrow um arrow the arrow station now so yeah i, I call it stations and, um... <laughs> i don't <I> think <laughs> i'm left talking about anything streaming as a station <laughs> that is just bizarre
1: Oh, man, Kane. <laughs> Um oh. But um, but we actually have another screening coming up this month through USC. We are showing a double feature, and it's going to be Don't Panic and Winter Beast. Um, and and it's a- I
0: think it's Winter. I, we, we still have to check with them, but I think it's Winter Beast first. Well, we've never seen Winter Beast, and we're no. purposely not going to see it, even though I've been dying to see it for years. Uh, we're going to watch that one first. It's apparently utterly bonkers, homemade kind of Night Beast material, from what I understand. And then we have hosted, a long time ago, we hosted a screening. um, That was a UCLA. UCLA, yes, with Agfa. Um, So we are well-versed in this madness, and you do not want to miss it. This is a good double feature for if you're going to be up late and you want to watch some crazy shit.
1: This one is, um, it's considered to be a Nightmare on Elm Street mockbuster. Um, it definitely is kind of a Freddy ripoff, but it is so fucking bonkers in that capacity. And the entire night is a pajama jammy jam. Yeah,
0: we're doing a lingerie party and server, so and just show up in your lingerie. Trust me, I'm telling. you. I've been Chris.
1: saying pajamas. Oh, you um, can say that. So let's
0: I'm up in leggings. You wait. Uh,
1: Leggings. Leggings are not lingerie. Okay.
0: Okay. Miss, you know, Miss PhD (laughs) in my dressing sense. I can do what I want.
1: You can can wear leggings. That's fine.
0: Actually, I don't know what I'm going to wear for this. Uh, I'm low on pajamas. I think I have Christmas pajamas and that's about it.
1: Vinegar Syndrome was actually selling the actual like dinosaur jammy reproductions from. Dope Are they Panic. still there?
0: I'll, I'll no, be.
1: I actually went and I was going to order us both a pair. I was like, I'm going to show up at Elric's store and be like, "Here's your dino jammies," and they were sold out. So, um, yeah, I was really bummed. I'm going to
0: have to have a word to them because we have a couple weeks. Maybe something can be done. Somebody can Maybe. serve this. <laughs> <laughs> There's sewing to be done. I can make in anyway, our jammies, those are actually worth buying. They are pretty badass, so um, oh, anyway, they weren't crazy
1: expensive either. I wish I, they were very affordable, okay. but they were sold out, so um, Respect. yeah, we'll have to see if we can find some dino jammies elsewhere.
0: I'm into it. Um, so that's gonna be a lot of fun. I don't think we've put up the link for that just yet, but maybe by the time this is up, there might be a link for people yeah. to RSVP. We'll check in with it about it. Um, I'll tell you something that I don't usually talk about here. Before we get into movies, um, I have not been able to watch many movies because I got completely enveloped in um, the the novelist Bret Easton Ellis, who r- wrote American Psycho, uh, amongst other things. And he has he's basically on his podcast reading uh, chapter by chapter. Every two weeks, he reads a chapter. Right, so uh, I think it's up to part eighteen. And, and as this a,
1: is his new
0: book, right? So this is a new memoir, which is fucking bonkers uh, i'm waiting for the last like there's only two or three more chapters i keep waiting for him to then suddenly go this was just fictional and i just told you it was really like because it's so intense it's like less than zero which was his first book that he wrote when he was still in high school you know was started writing in high school um it's like that kind of um kind of social group it's basically about his him and his friends when they were in their final year entering their final year of high school, Buckley, very rich elite school out here in uh, Los Angeles. And basically 1981. And it's something that he has blocked out for 30 years. He did not want to think about it. He did not want to write this. He didn't even want to think about it. No one he he contacted from his past wants him to even write about. And he, he kind of just couldn't not like it kind of came back to him. And so he just started documenting what he said and the way he writes it. It's just so luckily for me, I didn't pay attention. So I already had 18 episodes to catch up on. So I've just, I've binged this like, and you know me, I've never listened to a book. I, in my life. This is the yeah. first book I've heard.
1: It's true. I've been trying to sell Elric on audiobooks for a long time because you have the same commute I do. I know you I know, spend an hour and a half in the car each way to get downtown. Well,
0: this will probably change it, especially when, yeah. if authors are reading their own. Um, because this is, I mean, it's so personable. And it's very sexual. It's And the reason I'm bringing it up on the show, it's incredibly dark. It's a true crime story. Basically, there is a serial killer home invader in in, this, in the hills of Los Angeles during this period. Uh, girls are going missing. Uh, people's pets go missing a couple days before they do. So clearly somebody is like taking time. And then there's a new kid at their school who he starts to believe might be that guy. And then so far, one of his friends has already died by suicide and quote marks, and he doesn't believe it. And then it's also about kind of a coming of age story where Brett is talking about, even though he's got a girlfriend at school, he's actually you know closeted gay and having these, like relationships with other jocks that no one knows about that he's keeping secret. So it's like this coming up very sexually explicit, but it's very it's so personal and um and dark and intense. I've just been like I almost like I'm not even when I say I haven't been watching movies compared to a normal week. I literally would rather go on a long walk and listen to two of these because I'm so in it right now.
1: So that I'm so glad that you're finally getting into this because that has been, um, when I read books, I have to set time. I have to say, I'm not going to do anything else. I am just going to sit down and read, but like, um, I didn't talk about it on the show. I don't think, but, um, back in the winter I binged through one of us is lying, which they are now making a TV show out of. (laughs) Um, and it's really tense and it's really good. And it was one of those where like, I would go take walks just to listen. Um, or I would go drive just to listen. Suddenly I'm yeah. volunteering to go you know, pick You're up feeling, the kids right? from daycare. Yeah. It's yeah. it's so great. And I it is the one thing that has saved my commutes. Otherwise I would go insane. I can only listen to like so much NPR before I'm like, I need something oh, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I have, you know, the audiobooks. But because I have the hour and a half commute each way, depending on traffic. Um, you know, I get through them so quickly and it's how I've been reading books aside from graphic novels for the last two years. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean and it is different because I mean I like this one because it's a memoir and he's reading it and it's very fresh. He, he even said at the start, he's like, I might never release this as a book. I might not do it. I have wow. no idea. I need to get this out, this is how I'm gonna do it. It's unedited. He's just doing piece by um this one's called The Shards, and unfortunately his podcast used to be, you know, available uh normal, you know, those on the same channel as McGarris's used to be, um, podcast one. And for the last couple of years, it's behind a Patreon wall. So kind of like our Deep mm-hmm. Cut show, but it's only available there. Honestly, I've been paying for it for years without listening to much of it. And so I'm so thankful that I jumped in at a couple of different people. Uh, JD was one of the people who like said, you must listen to this. And my co-writer Webb said, you must listen to this. So suddenly I was like, okay. <laughs> and, and so it's great. So it's called The Shards. Definitely if you're into true crime stuff, uh, I would say jump in and just you know binge it like I did. That's uh, great. Very good stuff.
1: Wow. Well, I did watch some stuff this week. A a wide,
0: don't get me wrong.
1: (laughs) A a wide assortment of stuff this week. So I am leaving um, to head uh, out of town in a little bit, and so I I set myself with the um, kind of the goal that I was going to try to watch all of the Blu-rays on my to-watch shelf before I go. And um, there's some stuff that has been there for a while. And so I decided to check out Castle of the Creeping Flesh, which was a Severin release from probably a couple of months ago, but um, I'm getting there finally. And so Castle of the Creeping Flesh from 1968. All I knew about this going in was that everybody had told me, oh, it's sleazy. It's real sleazy. And immediately I'm like, well, I love sleazy. Let's do this. Um, directed by Adrian Hoven or might be Hoven like Coven, I don't know I hope so, um, but I hope so too um, but uh, Adrian Hoven, Hoven um, who is most well known for Mark of the Devil oh. which is also super yeah, sleazy and cool. I love it. Mark of the Devil there's so much happening in that movie compared to this one this one is just super slow kind of mood piece um, so it's not full exploitation it's got moments but it's not there yet Um, The whole setup, and this is where it gets a little confusing because there's, like, weird non-time jumps that I'll get into. Um, It is a whole bunch of, like, bougie, upper crusty people at this swinger party um, where they're all hooking up with, like, you know, she's here with her husband, but her husband's over there flirting with this other person's fiancé. Flirting is, like, tame. Um, They're, like, making out and about to go, like, fuck. And um, so, anyway, big, like, borgie... Bourgeoisie swinger party. A group of them get bored with all of the sex and say, Hey, let's go horseback ride through the woods. And so they do. And they end up at this nearby castle on horseback. And they get there, and there's this guy who's like, Come inside. Yes, come inside. I'll feed you all dinner. Somehow they all end up, this starts in the late 1960s, and they're in very kind of mod clothing. As soon as they arrive at the castle, I don't actually recall him ever providing them with costumes, but suddenly they're all dressed in like very classic Baroque garb. Mm -hmm. Um, They all and then it kind of becomes a period piece. But with these modern day kind of accents and the whole concept, it's a little eyes without a face. He is um, his daughter was killed. Very brutal scene where she is killed. Um, And then he decides that he's going to rebuild her body, but he's collecting body parts. So it's got kind of a Frankenstein thing. There's a lot of nudity. There is a lot of real surgical scenes where you can tell that they are using real organs from something. I'm going to suspect like a sheep, but real organs from something. So we're getting like real surgical things. Um, it's super sleazy, but somehow moves at a snail's pace. Um, so it's just very, very slowly paced, even with copious amounts of nudity and surgery. Um, I mean, but that's, set-
0: I, I don't know if it's getting older, but I know pacing is like probably my number one thing now. Like it, it, if something's paced wrong, cause I like slow burn, but that mm-hmm. usually mean, implies something is burning. Even if it's slow, but often when it's not and it's clunky, I've I've just find myself, my patience is a lot less than it used to be. That's
1: how I would explain this. Like it is probably 40 minutes in before anything even remotely happens and boobs are not going to keep me driving forward enough to get to that point. And I did, I mean, it looks beautiful. It's shot like a Hammer film where it's very period. We're looking at these beautiful Gothic sets, these beautiful Gothic costumes. Everything's real lush. You know, the surgical scenes are beautifully shot. But yeah, it was just kind of um, a meandering trip to get there. Um, So I'll say if you are kind of an exploitation purist or you just really dug Mark of the Devil, this one's worth checking out if you're just in it for the boobs and the surgical scenes, you can probably find a more riveting ways to get there.
0: Go find a genre long film. Yeah. But
1: this is, um, this does actually, this feels a good bit like a genre long film, but not as well paced. I mean like genre long film. This is
0: dreamily paced. Yeah. Dreamily. I mean like, it's
1: super slow, but at the same time I get what he's doing and why he's doing it. This was just kind of like, I've been watching these people eat dinner for 20 minutes and, now we're going to watch her strip for another 10. So yeah, it is just a little, little meandering. that um, right. that is Castle of the Creeping Flesh from 1968.
0: Okay. I have a couple new ones. I'll do one of them now. Um, Fried Barry.
1: I've heard good things about this. Yeah, like
0: I like it. My problem with it is, is basically it's a mixture of two of my favorite movies of all time. And therefore it's hard for me to love it because it, I think both of the other movies are better. Um, it is by from South Africa. Um, I think it hit Shudder. I think that's how mm-hmm. I saw it. And I think maybe Joe Bob did a thing. I wasn't watching, but I saw some people posting. So maybe he did one of his live things to this film, and I just missed it. Anyway, it's just it's basically the two movies. I won't bury the lead. The two movies that this is a mixture of are Bad Boy Bubby and Under the Skin. It, literally, those two movies—if they headbutted each other—it's Fried Barry. Um, the Bad Boy Bubby is one of my favorite movies, and Under Skins is one of my, probably my favorite of the last like ten y- years. Um, it's playful and it's pretty bonkers. It isn't necessarily horror; it's more like cult, you know, oddity. Basically, you've got this uh, heroin addict who is like, uh, you know, he's getting high. He gets home. He gets chewed out by his. Uh, his wife, Maybe his wife or partner, and they've got this little kid, and he just looks totally fried. I mean, he looks like a fried dude, and he's like a total burnout, um, probably like late 40s. And he's walking down the street. It's pretty non-narrative in the sense that just like not much is happening. He's just kind of walking down the street, and suddenly he's beamed up, and he's floating in space. And it gets a little, you know, uh, kind of the, the modern Mandy kind of lighting scheme. And when he comes back, he now has an alien inside him who's using his body and to experience things. So lots of prostitutes and... Uh, drugs and you know he improves a lot of his relationships and he's a little bit more adventurous in his sex and stuff like that so it's, it's a cool idea it's fun I like how it's made I think for me, if you hadn't seen these, especially Bad Boy Bubby, because he even kind of looks like that guy, I think maybe you'd get Yeah, it, right? he
1: does actually. But
0: I love Bad Boy Bubby's just like, you know, like it's one of my favorites. So, um, so I thought this was really cool. I definitely would recommend it for sure, uh, for people. Um, not necessarily, like I said, not hardcore. If you're looking for that horror hit, I don't think it's necessarily going to satisfy that, but I think you'd find it. It's funny and it's, and it is pretty wild in, in its kind of simplicity. Um, so that's Fried Berry and I believe it's on Shudder.
1: So I have heard a lot of people raving about this. So whatever it is, it's hitting with a lot of people Um, just kind of finding it to be just bonkers and wonderful in that capacity. Yeah, it's kind of like
0: a joyride. Um, As somebody writes, a, a, this the alien's taking his body for a joyride. That's kind of what it is. It's like a night in a human body, all the things you can experience, and then you're out, you know?
1: That's kind of crazy that it's like a a comedy about a heroin addict.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it's not necessarily funny either. That's the thing. So it's not really a comedy. It's like got that tone, but I don't think I laughed. I mean, maybe I laughed a couple times at the absurdity. There is, I will just say, an extra moment, and that's all I will say. Uh, that oh. that might surprise people, uh, you know. But no, it's fun. It's cool, and I and I don't want to. I definitely don't want to put anyone off it because I thought it was cool. I just, you know, some of its re- references are more my jam.
1: Excellent. Um, okay, well, I will jump into Things Seen and Heard. This is a um, brand new film. 2021 just became available on Netflix. I want to say like the 1st of May. It's pretty recent. It um, has only been there for maybe a week or two. And this stars Amanda Siegfried um, or Seifried. I'm saying her That's name incorrectly. Seifried. Yeah, um, this one, is based on a book, which I have not read, but it's got incredible reviews called All Things Cease to Appear. And
0: the setup- That's really funny that they would change that title. I know. Like it's almost just as abstract. Like it's one thing to turn it to cease three, but to like make an equally abstract title seems totally redundant to me.
1: And I think that Things Cease to Appear is actually a better title for the movie than Things Seen and Heard because it makes more sense. Yeah, even to Uh, me,
0: to my ear, it sounds a little better. That's a weird change.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bizarre change, but this movie it's going to feel very standard when you start it. Like I think when I was telling you about it earlier in the week I described it as stir of what lies beneath. Like yeah. you feel like-, like you've seen it before. It feels like a very kind of Um, generic early 2000s ghost story. It's about a husband and wife um, with their kid who um, she works in art and he just finished his PhD. And so he kind of takes control and is like, well, I'm now finished my PhD. I'm going to be a professor and we're going to move where I want. And so she kind of falls to the wayside in all this. And he moves them into this farmhouse in upstate New York. And this is where it actually gets kind of interesting to me is it gets a lot into art and it focuses on art in the region. They're looking at these artists around kind of the Hudson Bay area and they use them all like real artists in the movie, which was Hmm. pretty fascinating. Um, You know, kind of the whole Hudson Bay artist scene, which I was not aware of in any capacity Um, Essentially the farmhouse that they move into, and this is where it gets a little shining. The farmhouse that they move into has a long history of several generations of dudes killing their wives. And so then suddenly he starts kind of getting infused with the ghosts of the past and going off his rocker a little bit in a rather shining ish way um, where she just starts trying to, starting to feel that things are off with him and but she while he's communicating with these male ghosts who killed their wives she is getting messages from the wives who are still haunting the house as well and so it's got a lot to say about gender there were a lot of scenes in this movie that i really dug like this one i kept coming back to it i had to watch it punctuated because shit kept coming up and so i think i ended up having to watch it over three different times. Um, Like I had to stop and go take my kid to gymnastics and then come back and keep going. But I kept wanting to come back. It was a good enough film that I really wanted to see where it was going. And it was doing some really interesting stuff with the artwork and the symbolism and how the artwork was kind of coming through and the ghosts were infused in the artwork. And there was a lot of really cool stuff with that. It was set in 1980 and I never figured out why it was set in 1980 but it gave it an interesting aesthetic as well Hmm. um so yeah this is one if you are into your ghost films this definitely does have something interesting to it it's not gonna you know blow you away and you know completely you know Change your mind or anything like that, but it does have some interesting stuff in it. I walked away going, you know what, that wasn't too bad. So that, that was
0: doesn't need to be two hours, right? Because it's exactly does two
1: not hours. need to be two hours. So I will say that there's anything like that. There's a lot of people staring out of windows in this movie, but there is in every single ghost film of I am pensively staring out this window for you know too long so that I can see one thing move in the field over there, and so you are going to have that. But that said. There was a lot in this movie I did enjoy. And so that is Things Seen and Heard, which is currently on Netflix.
0: Yeah, that one I meant to see. And then then I was like w- hearing your original review. I was like, eh, maybe I can wait. But I'm still tempted. This is the kind of thing eventually I think I'll watch. It is, You know what's interesting about it is the team who made it. Very surprising to me. This is a Pulchi Springer film, and they are the co-directors um, of American Splendor which to me is just mm-hmm. one of the great movies, great American movies about the, the comic book artist, And so, and they're also like, we're documentarians before that. I actually interviewed Pulchi uh, last time I was in New York with Brian Sauer, where we were working on that Danny Perry documentary is one of the interviews we did. So it's just very surprising that he's, they're making a horror film to me. Like they are not it's, people I would have thought of as horror at all.
1: That somehow makes sense because it's focused on an art professor and his artist wife. And so even if it's not, Exactly like the American Splendor. It's got something hmm, to it that kind of makes sense for that group. Okay. Um, just because it does focus on that kind of media element to and it. And if you
0: haven't seen American <clears throat> Splendor, it is super- it's yes. really cool. uh, Okay, my next one was another new one that just hit. I think it's still on the paywall. It's called The Initiation, uh, as are lots of movies. Um, this I is was a- gonna
1: say I've seen about three of yeah. those.
0: Well, this one's 2021. Uh, and it's one I'd seen a few people post about. It is a new slasher film, so it's trying to you know do a new one set at a university. Um it directed John Barrado. The style's really good. It basically opens uh you know, there's a bit of comedy to it uh, initially where I was like, oh, is this gonna be like you know, happy death day vibe or something, but it starts with a fraternity and a sorority thing. And you keep watching kind of with squinted eyes going, Oh, this is going to end up being a sexual foul play. Where is it going to happen? Where's it going to happen? Of course it kind of heads towards that. It's a little oblique, but there's a girl in a room with two people and we don't know what happened, but no one's like undressed. So you're not really sure. And then her sorority sisters would kind of like, they, she runs a, good, a tight ship trying to make, keep an eye on all her sorority sisters at these parties and making sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Uh, anyway, the next day, um, her brother, who was the guy in the room, posts a photo on Instagram of the girl. and Oh, no, no. He'll go to the girl's Instagram. So this is how it works. And they will put a um, an apostrophe, an exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. And if a guy from the fraternity does an exclamation mark on your profile, it means you're easy or something. And so it becomes this thing at the college. And, you know, this is a very modern social media slasher movie. You know, it's kind of like and it kind of it started strong where I was really interested. And then it kind of in the middle goes almost like you could have literally told me in the middle that it was like a lifetime movie In (laughs) in the tone and the even the way they would deliver the message of you know, why this is bad and stuff like that. It, so that was interesting. But then there's these really, really graphic, gory kills. So it's it delivers on the slasher part. There's an unseen masked person killing some of the boys involved. And so you're like, oh, okay, who's the killer? It, very typical in that sense. It's. I think its structure is really weird it's like I said it starts one way then it has all these kills and then it like slows way down to the who done it part and it in that part is where it felt very lifetimey um where it lands in terms of the killer and the twist didn't necessarily really work for me um personally but it was interesting I could see a lot of people eating this up right now because I do think there's a lot of yearning for um new version new iterations of slashers that mm-hmm. are not just nostalgic which i thought this did you know this is taking maybe kind of the ideas of black christmas a little bit um Ooh. that the new black christmas you know the, about kind of uh, campus life and uh and, and stuff like that. but you know i'll leave this for other people to decide i for me it was a little bit middling by the end but i do think a lot of people will will dig this one and that's the initiation.
1: Well, I just added it to my list, though.
0: I mean, you're not really a slasher person, but, you know.
1: I'm not, but you had me. I love watching um, to see movies that have been infusing social media. And modern takes
0: on things, right? mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I either love it or I hate it. But if it's something like Unfriended coming in or some of the other ones, or even like Verve, a couple of, or yeah, Verve um, from last year. I absolutely loved those. I think it's a good
0: challenge. I think think filmmakers are a little reticent for good reason on diving into some of the stuff, even including cell phones, because they date things. They they kind of, everyone wants their film set in the eighties because it, that's when classic car movie trips work. But I think, I think really the next iteration is to dive in and to figure out what, how you can still make it creepy and work, you know? So
1: yeah, um, I'm fascinated by tech car across the board. And yeah. it's something that I, I know that, you know, either film companies here really want it, or they're very against you putting the technology yeah. in. And but I'm always so fascinated to see how it works. Like searching I, was another one. Oh that yeah, I did I see just,
0: that one. Yeah, that was. Interesting.
1: I loved it. I was so fascinated by it. It was just like watching this great unsolved mystery all on Facebook. Um, and it was yeah. fascinating. It, not horror. It's much more about like a, a missing person, but um, with a weird past. But it's fascinating to kind of see how they they made it. But yeah, so I will definitely be checking I this out. I might have
0: a project that might touch on social aspects of-
1: I I think I may have read this that project, we'll, and I'm we'll pretty excited. If it ever happened. <laughs> so I'm going to end with some bonkers shit that was oh, recommended good. to That's me good. via Mr. Kane. So a couple of months ago, I was on Elric's other show, Pure Cinema, and we were talking about animal attack movies. Um,
0: yes, we were- and, and if you haven't heard it, you should stop this now and go have fun. Oh, listen. Fun was it a was
1: one. a total blast. It was like four hours long of us doing Animal Attack movies. Yeah. I talked about, um, oh gosh, The Hound of Dracula way too much. But it was just, it was wonderful. I don't think
0: that can be too much.
1: I don't think so. I haven't either, seen actually. that, so
0: that you're going to make me watch it. So. <laughs>
1: um, but he had recommended this movie on the show. In
0: called- quote marks, recommended. I only recommend <laughs> them because you have to watch all of them.
1: Yes, this, it does very much feel like a... Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to recommend this as a good movie, but this is a very me movie.
0: It's a perfect this, Deep Rising double feature. If you did that in Deep Rising, you would have a perfect night at the movies.
1: This is 1988, and it is called Night of the Sharks. This is an Italian-Spanish-Mexican film starring Treat Williams, where Treat Williams is dealing with gangsters who are trying to find diamonds... And also, he's constantly being, I can't even call it stalked. He's like being pestered by a shark. Yeah. He lives in, it's supposed to Not be. just a shark, living, a
0: shark called Cyclops.
1: A shark called Cyclops. Who's, they keep saying he's a man eater.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so Treat lives in the movie. He lives in Miami and he's kind of a beach bum. And the area of the beach that he lives on, there's this shark that lives directly offshore named Cyclops. And Cyclops just fucks with him. Like anytime he tries to get in the water, the shark comes up and like fucks with him. And at one point the shark steals his boat, like literally chews the line and steals his boat. And then you just see treat, treat, like, lean forward and look into the water and go, fuck you. Yeah, I and love that
0: moment. That's worth the whole price of admission.
1: <laughs> it is. Just seeing him say fuck you to a shark was kind of brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then his brother, who has just stolen, like, $2 million in diamonds from the President of the United States, somehow is involved in this. There's, about like the
0: CD, a, or a, CD, a CD-ROM shit. There's, like, a
1: wiretap and the why, whatever the phone conversation is, they have it on CD-ROM, so he swaps the CD-ROM for $2 million in diamonds and then says I'm going to go lay low with my brother in Miami but then in my favorite shot after the fuck you line in the movie his brother gets off the plane and waves and then this very poorly kind of um, like toaster 1990 effects of a um, crossfire like a gun crossfire comes up over his face like a freaking star wipe and then all of a sudden you see him go (gasps) oh And the boat explodes, or his plane explodes, and then that's the and end. It of was Cyclops who did it. Yeah, no, no, it was it was somebody who was um, a shark the, with the bazooka. <clears throat> the U.S. president or his gangsters—I'm confused on the politics—was trying to get their diamonds back. Um, And so, brother gets towed on shore, and then on his deathbed, which was a ridiculously long thing on his deathbed, it was like ten minutes long. Um, He's like, "I had diamonds. They're at the bottom of the ocean." There's presidents, and how are you doing, bud? And it was just this long deathbed confession before he finally kicks it, and then Treat realizes that there is now diamonds at the bottom of the ocean, and there's these gangsters coming around to try to get him back. But, oh, no, Cyclops is there, too.
0: Is this the one and- with sleeping sharks, where there's a place yep. where they sleep on the bottom? Yep. Of the- because I think two movies that same year used the same footage and and both used it differently. That's that's my memory when I was yep. researching, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and sleeping sharks are a real thing where there's certain areas of the ocean that are like so oxygen rich that sharks don't have to be swimming. They can just like hang out there and breathe and take a nap, um, which is pretty cool. But yeah, this, this is 99% stock footage. And then the other part is um, this foam gray shark nose kind of being pushed through the water. Um, but at the same I. time, e. what, pure gold. whatever they do to craft out Cyclops and make him fuck with Treat the entire time is kind of brilliant because it's basically Treat Williams getting pissed off at this shark that's kind of pestering him. Um, and then there's some gangsters and diamonds. I am making this sound so much better
0: than it is. Yeah, it was but- a tough <laughs> one because it didn't make my list because it, but I had watched that and a couple others. And, and, but it did cross my mind like, yeah, I think you need to see this because if you do a quadricard, this has to at least get mentioned in the shark section. Um, this
1: was yeah kind of um kind of an amazing find uh i'll put this um in kind of the same vote as cruel jaws where only if you are a shark completionist or a treat williams completionist but this one was really fucking funny
0: yes this one missed out on being my list and i that's why i, I always will troll any account now with my image of franco Nero dressed as the shark hunter in in what is still my favorite character of the whole pandemic like the person who just gave me the most joy is like seeing Big Lebowski in a shark hunting movie um, and so that one's called shark hunter so I want that to be on next on your list because that one is it a is similar story up? like with gangsters and like sunken treasure probably the same footage but because it's Franco Nero as face Jesus as a shark hunter it is magic
1: <laughs> it is next up on my queue.
0: okay good uh, then the world turns um all right well this is that is our um, new stuff for the day so Here we are. I've got I'm going to start reading out our restrictions. Are you ready? Oh
1: dear lord. Okay, okay y'all. So no, go. before he jumps in, okay. let me just say last show we were counting down our 10 personal fave non-franchise 80s films. But then Elric put in all these other restrictions like it had to be domestic and, you know, uh, was-
0: northern North American, so it could no be No, Stephen or, King or, oh, or no John, Stephen Carpenter. King, John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Obviously, and
1: so he puts in all these rules, which I carefully adhere to in, in you know, making sure that every single one of my films, you know, kind of no
0: franchise if it's made in the same decade. It's so outside that decade, it's fine. That
1: was not on there. Now you're bullshitting. No, no, no. No, you did not say that they had to be within the same decade. So he does his list, and then I'm like, but The Hitcher and The Hidden are both technically franchises. Now, I will also say, though no one called me out publicly on it, I did realize later that I had Gothic on my list, and that's technically a UK film. So fair enough, we both fucked up. Oh, yeah, that's so weird
0: that I didn't pick that up, given that everything about that's British.
1: Yeah, it's a very enjoy. British film. Well, look,
0: I, I, will, I will defend The Hidden franchise. too, because that was made like tw- almost 20 years. Like this is my thing about a franchise. The whole point of the 80s was when somebody made a film, everyone then ca- you then cash in by making sequels. If you wait 18 years to make a sequel to something, I just can't, I don't accept that that's a franchise. It's a wannabe franchise. The Hidden maybe is. I had seen The Hidden too a long time ago and didn't like it. So I probably just wiped it out of my memory. So, uh, I'm still glad I stand by my choices um you know <laughs> uh so this time though there's even more so no john carpenter no stephen king no north american no franchises of north american movies uh okay so forget all that it is non-american horror films of the 1980s no restrictions except... no
1: restrictions they just have to be international horror and, films.
0: and, and there is one 80s. one like because i'm sure some will come up if it's a like a foreign director with a foreign cast shooting in America, pretending to be America, that's fine because that's obviously, so there can be a bit of a gray area here. I'm fine with that. Um, And again, the reason we put these rules on is not because I'm trying to be, um, you know, movie Nazi here. I am just trying to create better lists because everyone has seen, all of Carpenter and Stephen King's films. So yes. no one needs to hear us talk about them just yet. So this is our foreign, And then our last of our list episodes of the eighties will focus on our sequels and franchises. So that is sequels and
1: franchises. Yes. And uh, we have an exciting interview next week as well. Yeah.
0: If all of that comes together, to. that'll be a fun, that'll be yeah. a fun one. Um, but yeah, this one I'm into, because this is, these are all kind of like my favorite freaking movies. Like this is the kind of shit I live for uh foreign heart. I love where it, in the eighties, it's weird because foreign films, Yes, some of them are kind of like American 80s films, but the majority aren't actually doing the same thing America was doing. America was like cashing in and sequels and big franchises. Some right. of the stuff's more like really like more like 70s shit and kind of bonkers, but in a different way than what America was doing, I, th- I found.
1: So that was my biggest revelation as well is whereas America was all Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. A lot of these films that I put on my list today, I thought were in the 70s just because they have a 70s sensibility. Um, And then some of them I didn't even associate with 80s horror because they were just so vastly different from everything that we were doing here in the States. And, and so it's cool because it
0: some also come from countries that don't even really like make a lot of horror films, and then mm-hmm. something. So it, it's a mixed bag. Obviously, some of the countries were turning out a lot more than others. Some countries I, I realized I hadn't seen as much for, like I'm less aware what they were doing in the 80s when I was mm-hmm. doing this. Um, but yeah, I'll be interested. Mm-hmm. Okay, so prediction because last time we were we had only
1: one. We only had one,
0: one in that in the 80s, and I think we only had a couple in our um 70s 70s, i
1: think we had three but one of them was our number one we both agreed wicker man
0: yeah yeah we we had our number one the same so i'm gonna say maybe two here but maybe i'm
1: gonna say i'm gonna say three
0: I, i so okay i'm gonna reveal right now one thing that i did limit myself on one restraint which i did tell you about but i'm not making you but i did say to myself in the same way the carpenter and stephen king thing i said to myself i'm only gonna limit myself to one if if they appear on the list, one Fulci, one Argento, if they're even on this list, be, only because I
1: almost did that.
0: I could have literally picked up, I think, four Argentos and maybe three Fulcis would have been on mm-hmm. a normal list for me. So I just limited it to one each, just to keep some o- openings, you know.
1: Almost, I mean, it's it's appear. our personal faves, so I really wanted to be yeah. true to myself. Yeah, no, you more than anything, yeah. and so I, um, I can yeah. still respect that. I do have to say this is a very bonkers list for me just because I was being really true to myself. And then you know, it will why also why be a I'm bonkers list
0: watching. to me because I think we both are bonkers. So <laughs> <laughs> it's easier that way. All right. Okay. Number 10. And if, as always, if one of us picks one that's higher on the other person's list, we will say higher.
1: I promise this film is not higher
0: on your list. <laughs> I think you're probably right. <laughs> if you're saying that, you are probably right.
1: Number 10 for me is Lucio Fulci's 1984 Murder Rock. Oh,
0: mad respect. For, <laughs> I mean, this is what we're trying to do. We're doing personal list. We're not saying the best movies made.
1: Oh, God, so no. A
0: personal list. I love it. Go to so t- Murder, Murder Rock.
1: <laughs> Murder Rock is my perfect combination of like 1980s flash dance dancing and a slasher. And it is um, so nonsensical and dreamy like Fulci does, and it's neither a good dance movie nor a good slasher, but somehow when they get combined together, I will watch Murder Rock any day of the week. Um, I find it to be so watchable, even though I would never recommend it as a slasher or a dance movie. Um, It's hard to believe
0: that same director, like when you watch the style of that, it's so 80s, it's hard to believe it's the guy like made Zombie. You know, like I can believe it, Devil's it, Honey guy made it. <laughs> There's some yeah. symmetry there, but it's so great.
1: It just feels so wild. Do you remember? Because I, I haven't love... seen it a little while.
0: What What is the person? I mean, without ruining it, but like, wh- who's being killed? Like, I know there are people. I the don't, haven't seen. Okay, the dancers. Yeah, being killed, it's
1: I- it's a dance company. That, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a dance company, and so it's set in like the high powered world of like 1980s dance. So this is coming out, and there was definitely like this uh, this kind of you know dance chic in the 1980s, um, for a couple of reasons. We had the advent of MTV, and so suddenly the idea of having dancers being seen by everything becomes a thing. Suddenly, you know, by the late 80s, we have the fly girl, the idea of the dancer being an emulation.
0: And Jane um, Fonda's something. massive aerobics. So,
1: Yep, hit. that was the other thing Gina, Gina. I was gonna say was, yeah, the Jane Fonda's, and it was just in general, the size yep. kind of culture took the 80s. We see a little bit of that in the stuff, but you know those high-cut designer leotards are what makes this movie. And um, I remember my mom wearing those in the 1980s and going to jazzercise class. But yeah, this is this is flash dance. So you're looking at like this high-powered dance school. It's very competitive. Everybody's trying to get top spots in the company, and then somebody starts killing them.
0: Um, the, I would pay and- good money to double feature Heavenly Bodies and murder rock like i think that would be so much fun to go see those oh
1: my movies. gosh yeah i would love to see Flashdance dance and this well this oh, was yeah. shot on uh with the title slash dance and i'm not sure why they went with murder rock instead i think slash dance is a pretty fucking good title hmm. um but yeah there is a beautiful blu-ray of this that came out maybe two years ago i have no sense of time because of the pandemic um but yeah it's this is is just a very me film. I already so
0: that- I already like that you started with that. So. <laughs>
1: uh, 1984 Murder Rack by Muccio
0: sometimes, Fulci. Sometimes we are just in symmetry because my number 10 also has jazz aerobics. I'm not even kidding. And it's a movie I freaking have grown to just love it. It came up not too long ago on Pure Cinema, and that is Nightmare City by Umberto Lenzi, which also has a whole bunch of people doing jazz aerobics as as zombies in quote marks come and attack and eat them all in the most vicious way. This is one that's really grown on me the last few years. I don't, when I started young, I remember being kind of bored by it. And then I rewatched it just recently and just, it's just something about it I love. It's famous for being the first fast zombie movie, but mm-hmm. it's a misnomer. So apparently Tarantino was out talking about how much he likes this movie and Umberto Lindsay found out and got mad at him because Umberto Lindsay said, they are not zombies. They are infected humans. And, and he's right. They are, they, they seem. To be easy, because of Italy's tradition of zombies, it's very easy to think of it as. A, but they're not. This is basically an airplane arrives on a field. Everyone's it's gone, had gone missing. Every all the cops and a couple of journalists show up to kind of see what's happened. And as the people emerge from it, we learn that they had all been hit with like uh, nuclear radiation and have all turned into these. Uh, and the other difference of being zombies is not just that they're fast; they will grab machine guns weapons swords anything and it's fucking bonkers like it's kind of it's actually kind of scary at times because you're like damn you're really fucked against these guys because they're just they'll grab anything and and go after you um it's got the greatest actor on the planet hugo stiglitz from tinter oh yeah night of a thousand cats and it's so funny because i remember watching it going why was he cast in an italian movie because he's a mexican star And I love, you know, I really truly love Hugo Stiglitz. Like, he's just one of those presents I love. Uh, I was reading the producer was putting this movie. They had Franco Nero willing to do it. And at the last minute, he goes, you know what? We need to have a hit in Mexico get us a Mexican actor and so they got guys Stiglitz to be in this European film I'm like okay I guess that makes sense um, either way I love him um, he's also the namesake from Inglourious Bastards um, but uh, Emil Ferreira Francisco Rebel some big big actors are actually in this but it's actually got some really creepy stuff and so this European city is just based, starts to be flooded um, kind of like the crazies or something like that
1: mm-hmm. I was going to say it sounds like the yeah, it's a
0: mixture of the crazies and um, uh, the 28 weeks later kind of vibe you know um, but I just think this one's really bonkers the music's really good it's it's one that is like really growing in my steam and it's got some really cool set pieces not famous famous for the dancing one i was just talking about um but i just i just dig this movie if people hadn't seen it you know it's pretty easy to come across now i think there's a blu-ray but it's also on amazon so that and also umberto Lenzi to me made much better all his best stuff tends to be in a police Tachi or yeah. um, like the kind of crazy Italian sword and sandal sci-fi movies. Uh, not, maybe a little less in the heart. There's some, you know, Nightmare Beach and stuff like that. But um, this one's really fun. So that's Nightmare. I City. love
1: that he has the guts to fact smack Tarantino about know, one of his. I know films. He,
0: who's, who's nice things about his movies. I love I know. it. I love it. That no, Lens, no,
1: that's great.
0: Lindsay's a boss. So
1: my number nine will not be higher on your list. Okay, I like you. <laughs> I am, um, and that is Tetsuo the Iron Man from oh, wow. 1989.
0: Well, I left it off only, I don't know why I left it off, but this is, uh, could have been also number one on my list in some ways. Like, this was, for me, that in a head I, I saw very early, at, uh, and it was given to me by a professor when I was like 20, I saw Tetsuo, and so it made a huge impact on me. Yep. But I guess in my brain, even though it is horror, of course it's horror, it's insane. I always think of it as this other quality, like this weird no. quality. But so yeah, take it away, Tetsuo.
1: So Tetsuo, this is one, and I've talked about these movies that I, I've got this way before, but this is one that I ordered a bootleg, like third generation VHS tape of out of the back of a Fangoria magazine. Best way to see um, that
0: movie, I think, better than Blu-ray. In like
1: 1997, I remember I was in college because it came to my college dorm because um, I had it, and I was only in the dorm for one year but i had a stack of vhs tapes ordered out of the back of the fango and they they you know came from some weird sketchy place all like third generation um but tetsuo was one of the one that i had ordered and i sat down and i had like a, a one or two people from the film department who would watch weird shit with me most people were there for you know to to watch bicycle thief but um i had one or two that were like okay whatever the weird stuff you got from japan today let's roll it and we watched Tetsuo and the Iron Man, and this shit blew me away. And I was maybe two months into like being a film major at the time. And it was very much like, a, this is why I'm fucking here. Yeah. Cause shit like this exists. And so it was just so impactful on me. Um, far more so than Eraserhead, to be honest, because Eraserhead, it's, it's mentally kind of messed up. It will really, and I mean, it's got these kind of visceral qualities to it. But man, Tetsuo just really gets under your skin. Um, What's really? up to yes.
0: cyberpunk? It, like, <laughs> yeah. Actually, you understand what cyberpunk means when you watch it. And it and it uses a lot of stop motion. And its oh, yeah. imagery is really graphic and shocking. It's
1: real sexually charged as well. And there's really no rationale behind any of it. It is about a businessman who one day kind of cuts himself on a piece of metal and can Turns into what the metal fetishist, I think, is what yeah, he's called in the movie. Starts, yeah. Um, where he starts kind of obsessing over the cut and then inserting more metal into it, and um, you know, kind of just putting metal into his body, gradually turning himself into this like iron monster. And along the way, he kind of goes insane and kills his girlfriend it's a and giant it's absolutely drill penis,
0: which is what it's most
1: giant drill here. penis. Yeah, it's this absolutely horrible scene. Um, but this. To me, was exactly what I needed to see when I was being shoved in rooms with people who were just there to study Charlie Chaplin and Bicycle Thief. Um, was this type of completely just bonkers off the rails cinema that just makes me say, like, how does this exist? How did somebody even come up with this? How did you shoot this? I want to shoot this, I want to make crazy. It
0: proves there's no path to being a, mm-hmm. a career and i think that's one of the problems people think there's certain types of movies that lead to the next thing or if you have a certain education but you think about this if you go away into your basement and emerge with this you're going to instantly be noticed because especially back yeah. then now it's a little harder the marketplace is different but back then like a razor head, i'm sure that influenced them you know for sure mm-hmm. a few years earlier but it's it's so you cannot not notice it you could hate it but you can't not notice it it demands your attention and Every one of his movies I've found interesting. I've never disliked a Tsukamoto film. There's a couple I still need to see. Um, And he, weirdly enough, I only just discovered this in Martin Scorsese's last movie before. He had that one called Silence set in Japan. about. uh, Tsukamoto is one of the lead actors in it. And I didn't realize it at the time. And the story behind it was so freaking cute. It was that Scorsese went there. And even the Tsukamoto occasionally acts in his own movies. Scorsese like asked him to come and Sukumoto comes in thinking he thinks that Scorsese thinks he's some actor and he goes up to him and goes oh I am a big fan of yours and Marty goes oh I'm a a huge fan of yours that's why you're here like he's a huge Tetsuo fan (laughs) And that's why he cast him, And I'm like, in this like very serious religious epic. And I was like, that is so freaking cool. You know, (laughs) like that these dudes are just jamming together. So well,
1: this one came up in my life today. I already knew it was going on my list. um, And I was inclined to actually put it higher at times, but um, somebody had reminded me today on Twitter that I did when I was in grad school, it wasn't my final dissertation, but part of my thesis work, I focused on Japanese techno gore, which at the time there was this re, emergence of and they they were considered to be like Tetsuo worship films like Tetsuo was kind of the starting one but then you have things like Meatball Machine and Machine Girl and Tokyo Gore Police and they all kind of have this um technological quality to them but they're all really hyper hyper gory body films And I had done all of this research into them so much so that I even got in a fight with one of my professors who, um, after I finished all my research and handed it in, told me that these were inappropriate for grad school, um, for a film student in grad school that I needed to be focusing on um, less kind of lowbrow cinema. Hmm. And I took it to the department head and got all of my points back. I got an A plus after that, Um, and and took a uh, a lot of kind of paperwork along with me about you know people being judgy against. Horror, but it all my obsession with every single one of those films all comes back to watching Tetsuo Iron Man in my dorm room in like the late 90s.
0: Yeah, the body modification thing is fascinating and it's it's just interesting. Mm -hmm. That was obviously a big deal in Japan more than here, so I I find it interesting. Um, I will say if you're at this point of the um draft and you're like, man, these dudes are tame, where's the weird shit? Uh, this is a good sign chance to sign up to our Patreon where we do two (laughs) episodes a month called Deep Cuts. In that, we just covered some really bonkers. Japanese cinema. Gazoo. The Forsaken Part 1. Something uh, for who God has forsaken Part (laughs) 1. Which was Holy
1: shit. I was looking at pictures of that. It was just like, what the fuck am I looking at?
0: Uh, But anyway, so if you trust us, if you like the weirder stuff, that's definitely where we keep some of the stuff. um,
1: (laughs) And it's only $5 a month. Um, So yeah. It it, it is good
0: fun. That's the only ad plug I'll do because uh, I don't think everyone understands that that's where the bonkers should so
1: that's where we put the the really bonkers even though
0: stuff. there's gonna be some bonkers stuff on here okay so tetsu i am very happy that's on your list but of all the ones that's one i'm now gonna predict maybe we only have like one in common because that's Ooh. one that could have easily been on so we'll see um my number nine which i know you're a fan of but i don't know if it'll be on your list is uh uh cinema within cinema a little movie called anguish from
1: on my runner-up.
0: Oh, good, good, good. Uh, this is a this is. I actually it might have been on my runner-up, but I watched it again last year, um, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it just it's so effective, and it's definitely my one of the movies I most want to watch in a movie theater one day. Um, there's another one, uh, big surprise on this list somewhere that is also movie theater based. Big Ass Luna is a Spanish director, um, and this has a couple American actors that everyone will recognize: Zelda Rubinstein from Poltergeist mm-hmm. playing them uh, a domineering mom, and Michael Lerner, who's been in just tons of uh, American cinema he's basically a mama's boy kind of a a kind of a psycho relationship and he's a uh, optometrist who uh, is uh, encouraged from his mother uh, to use mass hypnotism and take out people's eyes for a collection that's one part of the film the within that i'm going to try to do this in ways that aren't spoiler but then there's also people watching a movie in a cinema that Mm -hmm. has references to what i just said and somebody is murdering them in the cinema. So it's like a girl and her friend, girlfriend going to the movies, just on a normal dance band, and it's really really well made it's the the play between these two kind of worlds i'll say in quote marks without saying how it all kind of comes together is so well done and it's really it's a little disturbing at times um but it's also always fascinating and i saw this at the incredibly strange film festival in new zealand when i was young that ant puts on and it just was one of those movies like i'd never seen a movie quite like this when i saw it um and think it's fantastic and something i did read uh for today's episode which i thought was really cool is that betty davis was offered that role you know,
1: wow, super,
0: you know, at the very end of her career, and she had a schedule. I could concert.
1: totally see it. But it'd though. be cool. I mean, I
0: was, look, Zelda's yeah. awesome, so Zelda works. But, um, but I could also see a late Betty Davis role it would have been really fun. But, um, this one is like under the radar for some people. You know, I know deep cut people are all into it. Um, but I think for some of you, this would be a great one if somebody has a cinema and is looking to play something bonkers on a 48 hour movie marathon or something, I think it's a great choice. So that's anguish. Anguish,
1: It's so watchable. It's heavy, but it is so watchable. And it's
0: just cut fun kind of turns. It's Mm self-referential stuff. pretty early use of that, the self-referential movies.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, My number eight is nowhere on your list.
0: Oh, wow. I love the confidence
1: here. Number eight from Mexico. 1984 is poison for the fairies. Oh, Which, you
0: talked about I don't that. think you've no, ever even seen. seen. I haven't seen this one, but I do remember a long time ago you mentioning this one.
1: Yep. This is one of these movies that I find I'm kind of regularly proselytizing because yeah. no one has seen it, and I consider it to be such just a fantastic landmark uh-huh. film. Um, it, it feels kind of Alucarda-ish yeah. in the setup, but it goes other places. This lonely girl is at an all-girls school and kind of – um, becomes friends with this other little girl who wants to be a witch and kind of starts leading her down this path. Um, and in it, she talks about how um, witches' natural born enemies are fairies. And so she's trying to poison the fairies. Um, but it, it just gets twisted and this is directed by um carlos enrique uh taboada Hmm. i'm saying his last name wrong um but he has just a long long history in mexican kind of supernatural horror cinema and books um and as a writer he wrote the witch's mirror which is honestly like just classic like mexican horror canon um But yeah, Poison for the Fairies. This was one of his last films. I think he maybe did two or three after this um, before he passed away Um, or his career ended. I'm not sure which, but um, it was towards the end of his career. But this one, it's this is like the good son if they were like trying to become witches. And it's just so it's a lot more pure and sweet and ideal idyllic than something like Alucarda because they're younger. They're maybe six years old in this and they both just look adorable. Um, But it's about the one girl's kind of journey to become the most wicked thing in the (laughs) world and her dragging a classmate along with her. And Mm -hmm. it is just brilliantly done and very subtle. And I love it. So that is poison for the fairies from mexico 1984
0: okay yeah i just looked at the poster and it looks really cool so i gotta i gotta look, see this thing i I, well, I can't remember how you must have mentioned that years ago
1: years ago i it was probably back on killer pov
0: Okay. Uh, well, speaking of a movie I discovered back on that old show, uh, this was one, uh, I feel like at the time had no presence in America whatsoever. We've talked about on our most disturbing movies. It's taking my, the entity type spot on my list here, which is a movie I've only seen once. I can remember every second of it. And it felt like I didn't breathe for 90 minutes. And that is angst from Austria, uh, Gerald Cargill's film from 83, which honestly is like the only thing I could liken it to. I did write this down. I wrote, it reminds me of when I read American Psycho because unlike the movie, which is, you know, satire and funny and like, you know, really easy to watch, the book of American Psycho, I inhaled it. Like I think I was seventeen mm-hmm. and I just read it and it's the most stuck in a point of view I'd ever felt. Like I am stuck in this person's point of view and it's horrifying. And this movie sticks you in the point of view of a guy who has just been it's based on some true stories of a person who was released from an asylum and, and goes pretty much straight away on a Uh, home invasion killing spree and you are just the camera has found a way to position itself with the, with the actor where it's like often low angle right on his face or right behind his head and never leaves him. There's not a second of respite from being stuck in this awful viewpoint of somebody who is not well and is violent and and it's so it moves in a hypnotic way the camera is just if it was just documentary style i don't think it would have had the same effect it's that it's like unbelievable camera work and so the reason this movie j- jumped onto people's um radar was Gaspar noe came to Family at the time uh director of irreversible into the void and he said this is his favorite film of all time he had seen it 40 times And he did, and he talked us through the whole thing and, and no one at the screening had ever heard of this film. And so he put it on. We all could hardly talk afterwards. It was so like intense. And after that, it got a Blu-ray release. And I feel like now quite a few people seem to have seen it and it seems to be in the conversation, but it makes a lot of sense in relation to his, his work, even though his, you know, besides maybe irreversible has that, the power to kind of, you know, um, leave you speechless. But this, this is like I've never seen a Descendant to *Guide* madness that actually delivers like this thing does. So I feel like if you haven't heard of this one, if you're not up for something that is really rough uh, in terms of like the way it treats violence, um, it's not torture. It's more it's more just it feels real and sad and scary, you know, um, really highly rate this film um, angst
1: yeah angst is a hard film to get through yeah. man i don't think well, I, I think you can get through it, but it's just like again. you would
0: not necessarily watch it again but i think i will watch it again someday just for the camera but it it's a tough one to go back to but it's it really is a, a special movie though i think in terms of like just vision so
1: i think sam zimmerman recommended this one mm. to me and uh i'm fairly sure it was him but it was back like decade ago but yeah one watch and i was like that's great i'm good i'm yeah. good now um but if man you're looking to feel something some night this is probably a very yeah. cathartic film
0: yeah it's pretty intense
1: okay moving to my number seven
0: on my from list or not.
1: possibly um, we'll see i doubt it actually i doubt it but um especially because we're moving up there from 1982 straight out of the uk Extra.
0: Well, I love this film, and it could also be number one of this list, but I didn't end up putting it on because, in a way, I forgot about the UK. I think <laughs> I was doing far. <laughs> I just kind of forgot about the uh, English speaking. I mean,
1: Rawhead Rex is definitely that would not be of, on my you know, list,
0: not even close to my list. I
1: have though. so much fun with that. It's movie. got
0: moments, but it is more comical in its like goofiness. But but Extra okay, I mean, is just fucking awesome. I love it.
1: Extra is fucking awesome. So, so this good. is from 1982, directed by Harry Bromley Davenport. Um. I still um, cannot give a cohesive um, descriptor of the plot of this movie, but there's an alien, and it's like an it abduction
0: is, start. A, a guy is abducted, his yeah. Kid a guy, guy is abducted,
1: and then a couple years later, the alien impregnates this woman, and then the guy who was abducted comes back out.
0: Yeah, and she has a baby like walking across the room, and it's just one of the most amazing scenes. It's so it's
1: wild the the birthing scene in this is is by far one of the most disturbing things that you will ever see so much so that it landed it immediately on the video nasties list and i still watch the birthing scene and just go oh my fucking god how did they do that um it's wild so this is an alien movie it's very disjointed it is very trippy um there's a scene where extra is walking across the street and it is still just one of the best like creature moments in cinema because it's so horrifying I really do not know a lot of what is going on in this movie, but I will watch it any day of the week. It is just this fever dream of alien
0: body horror madness. And a little clown and a Black Panther or a Black Leopard or something. Black Leopard, yeah. And, and apparently, like I think in the commentary, it's revealed that, even though I really like that moment with the Black Leopard, it's revealed that Bob Shea had a dream and called the set and said, you have to put a black leopard in your film. And the guy was like, I'm not putting a black leopard. In. And he said, I will pay for it. And he paid If that's true, it's like even better.
1: That's amazing. Because <laughs> he produced it. Oh my so God. Apparently they made an extra two a couple of years afterwards. I, I did not two. see it. There's a three. Um, there's a three.
0: And maybe there's even a three. Four. I have wow. watched those. Yeah.
1: I have only so ever market. seen extra one, but um, yeah, it yeah, is, it is just this beautiful, um, just how the fuck does this even exist? Uh, just culmination of everything that is just beautiful about exploitation cinema. It's
0: a shout out to Dennis Atherton, the number one extra fan. On the-
1: number one extra fan in the yeah, world, so Dennis Atherton.
0: Head out to you. Uh, okay. My number seven, I don't think this will be on your list, but i I think you, uh, probably like it. Um, I rewatched it today because I hadn't seen it in 20 years and it went way up on my, it was going to be my number 10 and it's all the way up at seven because I thought it was so fucking good. And that is from Japan, Evil Dead Trap. Um, oh, here's an interesting no. fact. Toshihara Akita, who made this, I just found this out when I looked him up. He made the film I sent you last week that you liked about the mermaid revenge film.
1: Oh, shit, that movie was so good. I haven't
0: watched that one yet, but I I want to now, because I was like, ooh, cool. So
1: Yeah, I haven't talked about it on the show no, yet. No, you what didn't. I thought you were going to talk
0: about It's called Mermaid's Revenge or something. Like, it Mer-
1: a, yeah, The Mermaid's Revenge. But it's
0: meant to be like a kind of a straight revenge thing with a slight...
1: It's a straight, girl. like, rapey revenge yeah. type thing, but it's really good. Good. It was really Yeah, well save it. Done. Make
0: sure you do on the next, the Deep Cuts, because I was curious to hear about that. Maybe I'll try to watch it by I then. I think
1: I was waiting for you to watch yeah, no, it. no, I will. So.
0: I'm now, I mean, especially once I realize it's the same director. This movie's so cool. Um, what I remembered when I was young seeing this, again... This I, is I,
1: evil, evil Dead trap. A
0: trap. You know, it's, a, it's yeah. a shame the title felt the need to, like, take the Evil Dead thing, because then I think that builds up, like, oh, is it going to be like that? It's nothing to do with that. So uh, I saw this one at the same festival, Incredibly Strange, when I was young, and it's one that... Um, What's so cool about this? This is a Japanese film, but you can tell that the influence of this movie is Suspiria, Inferno, and Italian horror. And that's so cool because that's not something you see much of in Japan. You don't see the influence of Italian cinema on the Japanese cinema as much as other... And I mean direct. There are some scenes in here where I was like, oh, this is like Inferno. And there's like a very... Like It's not quite the final image, but it almost was, where I think it was the same as the final image of Suspiria, where the girl's just walking along while things are on fire. And I was like, oh my god, this is clearly a reference. Um, But also the score is very much like a Suspiria. And I thought that was cool. But this is a... Kind of like The Howling, it's a woman who works at a TV station. She's a late night, has her own late night journalist show that, you know, some people watch. But it's kind of like, if you have trouble sleeping, listen to my show. Here I am. And it's all very sweet. And she has like her crew who film it. And she's she's not a hard hitting journalist. But she gets some weird mail and people who love love her. And one day she gets this videotape that shows uh, basically a traveling shot that goes from her office all the way out into the middle of nowhere. Uh, outside of the cities uh, to this kind of like broken down. Um, I don't know if you'd call it a garage or an old army base or something. And inside we see someone tortured and killed. And he's like, you know, and the note says from a fan or something. And she's like, Oh, this is creepy. And her, the people who work with her, are like, we've got to go find it. That's a great story. So it's like four girls, And who, you know, the costume girl, the script girl, the producer girl, um, you know, and then the one random dude who's like the nerdy camera guy who they're going to drag along with them. Um, And if this was made now, it did cross my mind. I was watching this going, oh, if this was made now, they would have made it found footage. And it would have made a lot of sense as a found footage movie, actually. Um, But I much prefer it like this because it's very stylish. Anyway, they go out there. And they start being killed off and really grisly, like really artfully grisly, very much like Suspiria sequences that are really like kind of shocking. There's a there's one scene where a girl's kind of being uh, sexually assaulted that I did find, you know, in that Japanese way. It kind of was a little too much for me. Um, that is just luckily is only one scene and people get their comeuppance pretty quickly, luckily. Um, but you don't know who's doing this. You know, somebody's obviously laid these traps knowing that they would finally come. And uh, there is some weird mysterious loner guy there who's, who acts like he's there hunting for what might be his brother, he says. And so the girl who's the TV station journalist talks to him and it starts building to the two of them trying to kind of figure this out and maybe find his brother. And where it goes, and I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to ruin this because I had forgotten. I, even at this point, it was on my 10 again. I was like, okay, this is taking my ten spot. The last 20 minutes, it goes more in the realm of Hennenlauter which surprised me and it's bonkers with the biggest neon B you could ever see. And it's, and it works and it's freaking awesome. Like the ending was so cool. The last like 20 minutes was so different from the rest um, that it really sold me. And and I guess there is, I knew there was an evil dead trap too. I think I've seen a long time ago. I'm going to try to see it now, but this, it it really, the influences of this really make it so fun because it's it felt less like a Japanese horror film than it did a Italian horror film that happened to be all Japanese people, which was super cool. Um, so
1: here's a confession. I think I've only seen Evil Dead Trap 2.
0: I think the second one was easier to see for a long time because I remember so, seeing it when I was young. So,
1: Well, here's where I saw Evil Dead Trap 2 was um, probably a decade ago. It was right when we had just started doing Dead Right Horror Trivia Night, um, and Ryan and I were still hosting it together. There was a distributor that was putting out Evil Dead Trap 2, and they'd printed all like of box, these DVDs. Right? I remember. And, like yeah, I so. yeah, and yeah, there know. was... There was a typo on the cover and they ended up having to reprint all of them. So they gave them to us to gave out. And I had like cases of them. Like I remember joking, I was going to build furniture out of Evil Dead Trap 2.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of and, hoping uh, I can find my watched copy. Watched one. Yeah. yeah,
1: I had watched one. I don't think I've ever seen the first the, one. The
0: first one's really up your alley. Like I've got to say, like I think everything about this would be a movie you would dig. So um, I'll have to see what it's on right now because I looked on some streaming thing and I didn't see it on Amazon right now. I still have a disc of it. Um, I'll, I'll find a way to get it. I think you'll really dig this one. And I was really, this was exciting for me because this is one of those movies where I'm watching and go, ooh, it's a three star movie. Ooh, it's three and a half. And when it ended, I was like, yep, four stars. <laughs> and wow. that's always exciting to me with like crazy movies. But uh, but I had seen it a long time ago. I just didn't remember where it went. Um, but it's just also great. It, like, it's not hard to find a bonkers Japanese film, of course, but one that also makes some sort of sense. <laughs> it's maybe trickier. Um, so that is taking number seven, Evil Dead Trap.
1: My number six may be on your list. Ooh. And my number six is Durfan from 1982.
0: I actually, I think Anx took the spot. It did cross my mind. Uh, I love Durfan. Well, I mean, I, I you know. So, you're the reason yeah, I yeah, saw it. I, I think in some ways though, I can see why it's even more yours, just the, the, the character and stuff I could see. Mm-hmm. Um, But this one, again, there's this thing in my brain, same with Tetsu where even though they are hard, they're also like in this weird cult niche where they're just not like any other movie, like, which is a good thing, right? Derfan's awesome. So tell the, so tell the people.
1: Durfan, that, you know. Durfan, um, this is, this movie just like hit me. Um, Elric had lent me this right when we first started. I think it's started Macabre it was
0: Mondo Macabro disc that put it out recently. Yeah.
1: The Mondo Macabro. And you'd lent it to me right when we started doing our Patreon show. It was probably like one of our first two episodes that we talk yeah. about it on. And the setup, this is um, directed by Eckhart Schmidt. It's a German film. And the setup is that there is this just absolutely stunning. I mean, she just lights up the screen, maybe 15, 16-year-old girl in high school who is completely obsessed with this rock star.
0: It's like a new wave. Band. Yeah,
1: it's it's very kind of synthy new wave. And she is just completely obsessed with him, Is sends him letters all the time talking about how she knows they're going to get married. Like she has built this massive relationship up between the two of them. And she um, skips school and runs away and goes to one of their concerts, determined that he is going to marry her and hook up. And she gets there and he decides to hook up with her. He actually, they end up meeting and they hook up. And then it takes this absolutely horrific, wild, holy shit, I did not see that coming turn. And then it gets very yeah, You can't really say much out.
0: about it because it's so its so dark. Uh, yeah.
1: But but it's the ultimate
0: it's the ultimate obsessed fan movie when you think about like, yeah, could never be the other thing about it is it builds on repetition really well the first half, most of it is her checking the mail every day. Yep, obsessively to try to get a fan letter back and she's harassing the mailman. So you really feel her obsessive nature as beautiful and as Mm -hmm. sweet as she is. And and it's like kind of it is disturbing. No, that's a really interesting movie.
1: And that's part of it is that she is so just gorgeous and sweet. And so you're watching this obsessive behavior. And then when it takes such a dark turn, it's like, Oh my God, like did not see that coming. But yeah, it's all about fan obsession and it's beautifully shot. Too. Oh, yeah, it's really well, like made. it's just incredible. Yeah, it feels lovely. more like
0: a European art film that mm-hmm. happens to be photographing really grisly stuff by the end. Um, and also the guy who plays the rock, the he's the real rock star. So whoever he was, he was a new, the lead singer of a, popular new wave band and they cast mm-hmm. them so it so the it, music's good yeah the music's good and it feels very authentic yeah pete this is a good i love these ones that are going to be for a lot of people not seen yet christian f and movies like that it comes from that same time period in mm-hmm. that german cinema that was very hard-hitting um very cool very glad that yeah. one made your list. i'm Der glad Fenn, you. Liked it.
1: 1982 i loved it
0: um number six might be on your list um it could also be number one of the any list made about movies in the history of movies because it is the most entertaining movie I've ever seen in a movie theater. And that's not hyperbole. When I saw this movie, it was before the renaissance of this movie. I started a film festival in the middle of the night and I, I'm i still to this day, or think about that screening as maybe my favorite screening. And it's exactly what you thought it was, which is <laughs> you be in Texas to watch this. Uh, you can actually go to Spain and that is Pieces
1: I may have something else by this time. I had a sure.
0: feeling. But I'm telling you, when I saw this movie, I think I was 21. Again, it might have been Anne. It might have been the Buttonumathon. I don't know what it was, but it was in the middle of the night. And here's the thing about a great movie. This movie uh, has my favorite opening of a movie. Like, I just think the first 10 minutes is just brilliant. It has my one of my favorite twist endings of a movie it's just like brings the house down. And in between it has some of the funniest, most bon- bonkers moments in any movie. It's ridiculous and funny and silly, but it's always also fucking awesome. So it's not like it's a bad movie. It's got moments where it almost is. Right. Um, but it also has moments where you're like, it's just surprising. And fun. I just love the opening. I vote even in the first 10 minutes. I was like, I would remake just the movie based on the first 10 minutes. Um, but it uh, it's uh, yeah, it. Um, say it. Say uh, well. What say the? Oh, oh, bastards! Bastards! bastards. So it's got Christopher George uh, from City of the Living Dead uh, and and many American movies, and his wife Linda Day George, who gets to say uh, the word "bastards" like seven times and with increasing uh, euphoria. Uh, it also has Paul L. Smith, uh, who plays Bluto in Popeye, and he's like the most the most transparent uh, plant villain you've ever seen uh, cast in a movie. <laughs> he's like villainously. Uh, uh, Cutting down, you know, uh, some, some hedges or something while a girl's sunbathing. Uh, this is set in Boston College, um, but I call it Bostelona. Um That's it, because it's basically Barcelona as Boston. Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to say it with a Spanish accent. Anyway, it's Boston, and they tell you that many times it's America. with as many... Um, uh, flags about America, as you could probably put. But at the opening is this young boy is doing a puzzle that he's not meant to have of a naked woman. And his mother comes in and she berates him for doing something sexual. And he's like really repressed and made to, meant to feel small. And then he does something crazy. And that's your opening. And then it cuts to 20 years later, Boston. And women are being hacked up. Different pieces are being taken from them. We don't know why. Um, and most importantly... Uh, I have been, until today, I've been wondering why there is a character who does Kung Fu in the middle of this movie. Like, I've always been wondering, like, why is this one scene got, uh, who is the famous Bruce Lee imitator? His name was also Bruce Lee, uh, but with one E. Uh, He was in many, many films during this period. And it turns out the producer at this time, I read was in making all these Kung Fu ripoff mo- movies in Rome. So he figured it would help the film sales if he put the guy <laughs> right in the middle of the movie. Uh, I've always wondered about that sequence because it's very out of place. But um, yeah, this movie has just such, a, the ending is so good that it's one of those movies, it wouldn't matter what happened in the middle if it ended this way and as surprising as the moment happens. Uh, it's a total crowd freezer, And uh, I'm proud to put this in my in my top 10 pieces. I
1: saw this in a theater when I lived in New York City decades ago and absolutely loved it. And I actually tried to watch it a couple of years ago. And um, I think I t- ended up telling the story about it on Shockwaves. But while I was midway through watching it, um, my daughter comes out and she's like half asleep. And she goes, Mom, the screaming's keeping me awake. Can you please turn it off? And then she just meandered and went back to her um, room. And I was like, I am such a horrible mom, but that's kind of life. kick-ass. Yeah. yeah, that really does sum up my life. There's just mom. The well, wait, wait a few years off.
0: and watch it with her. That's what <laughs> yeah, I would
1: do. Exactly. Uh,
0: but it really is a good movie. And if you haven't seen it, it's just like it's just so fun. It's like it's like get get your local theater to play it one day. You know, and you'll mm-hmm. have. And that's Bob Morawski's company put that back out into the world. So it's very easy to find. Grant out. House
1: releasing. Yeah, yeah,
0: very happy that it's out there
1: well my number five um i love this movie so much it's just it it makes me cry and smile and that is from 1987 a chinese ghost story oh, this cool. is a hong kong film um this is a romantic martial arts movie horror comedy it has a lot of evil thing. dead
0: shots right like a lot of shots like that, yeah
1: Yep, there's a lot going on in this movie. At its core, it's considered to be a martial art movie, but it is definitely a romantic horror film Mm -hmm. in that capacity as well. Focuses on a tax collector who's traveling around the country collecting taxes, and he is in this tiny, tiny little town and realizes he's going to be there overnight and it is too late to travel back through the forest. And so he decides to sleep in this um, ancient temple and while he is there, there is this ghost and he falls in love with the ghost. Mm. And it is just so sweet. And then once he finds out the ghost story and everything, he feels the need to kind of get revenge on her and his relationship with the ghost. There is just something so Sweet and yet supernatural about this, and then it's also a, a martial arts movie. Um, so there's a lot going on, but this is one I've never seen another movie like this. It's best and kind. Yeah. yeah, it is just one that and I first discovered this. It was in the Fangoria 101 Films You've Never Heard of book back in the 90s and long before i worked for fangoria i had that book and used it as like a checklist and some of them were really hard to find but this is one that i was able to rent at a video store and it was just such a shockingly underseen film and still is and so this i don't think 19- i saw it actually great like i
0: actually, watched the first few minutes of it um last year that's why i said the evil dead thing because i remember the first shot and the copy wasn't very good and so i was like ah i need to see this you know so i'm gonna definitely watch this one i need
1: it's beautiful it is such beautiful filmmaking um in addition to just being a, a wonderful film and so that is a chinese ghost story like i i love the cinematography in this movie so much
0: okay so no my number five um is also just like one of my favorites of the 80s of what it's the most in some ways it's the most 80s of the movies on this list like it would work in america in the same way as it works in europe unlike most of these movies that are very european Uh, i will be shocked if this wasn't on your list and maybe mildly disappointed so let's see if it's higher on your list and that is demons
1: was on my runner up. Oh. I
0: almost had it. I almost thought this might be like one or two for you for some reason. I don't know it, why.
1: It came close. I it know I, I know
0: you love demons too, so
1: I love demons too. Oh my god. I love demons as well. Yeah. Demons too, I Demons I definitely two is fun, but
0: demons it. is like a is really one of the great horror movies. Yeah. And there aren't many like this where where it's like unrelenting and it just goes for it and set in a movie theater. Uh, You know, to me, it's Lumberto Bava's best film. It's 88 minutes exactly. And I've always thought that's the perfect length of any movie. So I love that. It's exactly that. Um, It has the best tagline. They'll make cemeteries, their cathedrals and the cities will be your tombs. Like that gives me shivers even just reading that. Like it's as good as uh, kind of when, you know, the dawn of the dead kind of uh, tag. So um, I just love this movie. I think it moves so well. And I haven't mm-hmm. seen it recently. So I'm kind of like dying to kind of rewatch it in the 4K or whatever was released. Um, but yeah, you've got a group of people unearth uh, this this mask, which is also cre- related to a demonic pack somehow, unearthed while they're all in a movie theater. And basically, they, the person puts it on. Is it Greta Greta who puts it on first? Or mm-hmm. she's cut by it, right? And then basically becomes these like, they're like hyper zombies right or something they're
1: not they're demons and it drives me nuts that that's no longer a thing because we have the demons we had night of the demons we had you know demons were a thing that you could have in the 1980s where it's like they're not zombies they're demons but now if you try to say that it's like well if we have demons we have angels no they're fucking demons man um but yeah, I love the whole demons kind of mythology. I wish we could bring that back as a creature. Yeah,
0: and of, if somebody said to me, like, you know, here's your $5 million, you can remake any movie for the American market, As even though it might seem sacrilege, I think demons would be one of the easiest movies to translate to an American like and just making something that's super intense, movie theater. But like, if you could really do it, go to town. I've always thought this is like one of the closest to the American sensibility of that period for a European yeah. film, and probably why it did so well here um, on you know video. But it is it is a terrific movie, and if you're looking for that scary, intense, thrill ride, it will tick that box.
1: Hey Elric, I don't even know if we're gonna have one crossover because uh, we are already. Done. In the top end of our list, and I got a couple more that I guarantee you do not have. Well, I on guess your that's
0: list. the difference of doing like what are the yeah. best ten versus what are your versus favorite
1: ten personal faves. Yeah, yeah.
0: okay, that would be fascinating so if we don't. Hey,
1: okay, it
0: happens to me with Brian all the time too. So it's it's just we yeah. hey we obviously podcast with the right people. What are you gonna do?
1: In my number four slot, I have. My other favorite dance horror movie, and that is 1987, Michelle Suaavi's Stage Fright.
0: That is not I, a host,
1: but I do love it. <laughs> I love this movie so much. The fact that it opens with a fucking dancing giant Owl, yeah, and it is a musical where the killer is a giant owl, and then not it goes. It, now, but, you know. <laughs> you get owl, but you know, but then it goes into a meta film about the stage production and the theater company that you've been watching perform, and somebody puts on the giant owl mask and starts killing. Honestly, I think that this movie has some of my absolutely favorite murder sack sec- pe- yeah. sequences. Ever, um, The scene under the stage with the feathers falling down, that is some next level fucking brilliance. I've used that in my classes so many times because it, it's pure tension, but the cinematography and how it's being shot, it is just absolutely gorgeous. While simultaneously with the cat, there is just so much going on in that scene that is just driving the tension every inch of the way. <clears throat> so passionate about it. I'm choking.
0: <laughs> and it's con- controversial to our backstory because I tried to veto it on a Giallo list.
1: That you did do. Um, did I veto it or
0: I- did it end up making it on?
1: You vetoed okay. it.
0: Yeah, and I think I stand by that still. <laughs> but either way, it's a great movie. It's a, and, it, and it's a great version of a slasher movie too. Like either way, you know, whatever you... Y-
1: and this is one, I still consider this to be a giallo film because you do have a masked black glove killer. It still feels very much like a giallo film. But at the same time, this is clearly where it's starting to transition into Italian slashers. So I understand why you would have vetoed it because there's such blurry lines yeah. there of like, when does a giallo film become a slasher film?
0: Well, like Demons, this one would also make more <clears throat> sense. It feels more American- than a lot of the Italian stuff. Like this one, feels like it would make a lot of sense playing in America too, because of some of those sensibilities, you know.
1: And it is so 1980s as well. Yeah. And I mean, most of the Giallo films—they were always about fashion, they were about musicians, they were about photographers. It always had this kind of high art quality. Um, but this, even though that it's about a, a you know kind of Broadway touring company, they—it is very 1980s. It is over the top. It is hyper color. It is giant eyeshadow and teased up bangs. Like it feels of the time and it feels super hip. I love Michelle Suave across the yeah, board. Cool. Um, but this by far is, is my when favorite. When
0: we favorite. do our 90s horror list, one of his movies will probably be very high on both our lists. That's all I'm mm-hmm. saying. Um, I would
1: think so as well. Yeah, very
0: well, I am going to take from your <laughs> favorite murder set piece to my favorite murder set piece from the same country. And that is my Argento entry, which is a Tenebrae. From Italy which is one of my favorite movies ever I mean I it's really hard because a part of me also wanted to put like phenomena because it's the most 80s movie you could have by Argento it's a very oh my
1: gosh yeah I
0: love it I I think it's good and I I think Inferno is one of my favorite uh, horror films ever made but Tenebrae I think suits this list the best because it's also like the perfect it feels like the conclusion to Giallo it feels like the end of the period of Giallo but also a massive step towards the slasher film and Stephen King concept it's a Stephen King story it's a it's a horror novelist is being you know stalked about and imitated uh, murders from his book um, and trying you know kind of coming for him in in a foreign city which is the perfect kind of Stephen King which is an 80s horror writer so to me this one has a lot of big swings but then the set pieces are just so well done Uh, The flashback structure uh, in terms of like what it's looking at is so different and original at the time and feels so edgy. Like now some of the politics and, you know, are probably dated and some of the ideas, but I still think they're interesting. Um, It has a good cast. Anthony Francesco. Uh, who plays the lead? You know, is a very well-known American actor, uh, John Saxon's his book agent. Uh, Daria Nicolodi is really great as the kind of um, you know the the writer's assistant type character in this. It's got my favorite mm-hmm. goblin track of any of their music, not necessarily the whole score, but the main. The I just think it's like next level. Oh
1: god, that it's, that you know for a murder no, scene, it's just, amazing. It's that motif is so good,
0: and there's just there's an incredible crane sequence that's a couple minutes long, which is just you just people don't make movies like this anymore. especially don't make horror movies where they're doing a two minute crane sequence to, for the payoff of the kill. Like it's, I mean, maybe, you know, somebody like, uh, Jordan Peele or, uh, the guy who made, uh, you know, Midsommar could put, could get away with wanting to do that now but most people wouldn't even be allowed to it, it's so freaking great and um something really co- apparently was inspired by argento was actually stalked by fans so that's what inspired the story wow which I was super interesting um but there is one fun little thing that might be a little bit of a spoiler for a movie that's uh that may or may not come up no one will know but i never knew this this is uh, from imdb the harsh modern look and cinematography of the film was largely due to Dario argento being impressed with Andrej Zulowski's possession from the year before.
1: What? I did not
0: know this fact ever, and both were on the Video Nasty list. So there's a little factoid that I would never... And I lo- what I love about that is I really get excited when filmmakers are being blown away, just like John Carpenter on the In Search for Darkness documentary. He talks about um, Prince of Darkness being inspired by Argento's Inferno. He was like, I saw Inferno, and I was like, hey, let's do something like that. That's badass. Like, I love that shit when it's these guys who are huge getting inspired by another, like, director who just made a film, like, the year before versus, like, I
1: had no yeah. idea. So that
0: was really exciting. A fun little discovery for today. Um, But, yeah, Tenebrae to me is, like, there's so many Argentos that would be on this list for me. Probably, I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. i come around to thinking opera is really a, a masterpiece as well, you know. I
1: watched opera a couple of years ago after Ryan had revisited I think it, it was The Blue yeah, had come out, Yeah. It's much better than I, I kind of remembered it from watching when I was binging all DHS, of our gentlemen in yeah. my teen years. Yeah. You know,
0: it's a beautifully made movie. So, you know, he's still at a really high point in the 80s. So, mm. um, But yeah, Tenebrae is a must if you haven't seen it.
1: My number three.
0: <laughs> On my list or not?
1: Definitely not. And uh, if anyone had said, what's Becca's number one film from the 1980s, this would have been, you know, what Twitter would have answered with immediately. Um, This is 1988 Slugs. Yes. um, Directed by, same guy who directed pieces, jean Piquet Simon. Spanish movie based on a series of novels that I absolutely love by Sean Hudson. Actually, just um, yesterday, they did a lecture on the history of Sean Hudson at the UK Miskatonic Mm -hmm. University. And it's in the middle of the morning for us here. And I had meetings the whole time and I was so frustrated that I couldn't watch it. But Slugs um, is one of these films that I I kind of like hesitantly rented sometime in high school and then was just so shocked by I still have such a fun time watching this movie. Um, It's just so watchable. It's silly, but the slug effects are actually really good. Good. Like the slugs biting people looks really good, so much so that I'm still curious how they did it. It has these haunting moments that still affect you, where like the parasites eat the guy's face alive in the middle of the nice restaurant. And essentially, the whole setup is just that these kind of slugs that have been swimming around in radioactive sewage suddenly kind of become man eaters they start eating meat and they also start breeding in heavy amounts down in the sewer system and they just start creeping up and taking down a suburb it's supposed to be this upper middle class neighborhood that just starts getting attacked by killer slugs what's the
0: dude the dude on the ship or in the in the restaurant who is it cuz did he eat one or something
1: no he ate so his wife made a salad that had one of the killer slugs in it and apparently killer slugs like naturally carry these like protozoa parasites in their gut Hmm. and so after he ate the pieces of the slug the protozoa parasites also became man eaters and they ate his face in the middle of the restaurant
0: it's so awesome that sequence
1: that is yeah that's the one that most people are haunted by because he gets a nosebleed right as he's drinking water and it just pours out into the water and um then he like goes to the bathroom and by the time he comes back there are these things like chewing their way through his face while he's still wearing it and um, yeah it's completely fucked up most people you know really recall that scene or the one where they're actually cutting the lettuce because she's literally cutting like diameter slices of the slug and then putting it in the salad and it's for some reason watching a slug being cut up is really haunting
0: yeah well that's one I did not expect I mean even though I knew you loved it I remember when I finally watched it with Dick and we both turned to each other afterwards like that was really good (laughs) it's like a really good movie. Like you don't necessarily think it's going to be a good movie. Uh, You think it's going to be bonkers, but it's actually a well-made movie. It's really cool. Um, No, this
1: is, I I wrote on Twitter a number of years ago that I, um, upon my death, somebody is going to write on my tombstone. She's the girl who convinced 10,000 people to go see slugs. Um, Like it's become like kind of, you know, my claim to fame, um, which is just fucking hilarious in that capacity. But that said, it's a really good movie that did not get, kind of the justice it deserves and it's just a very fun
0: watchable film it makes me wonder what your number one is then if it's at number three because uh yeah i think we both have movies that twitter might think where would be our number ones um my next i know three, what i
1: think is your number one
0: I, I feel like you could have even though our movies are all different i think you could have picked quite a few of mine as like mm. ones that i love like because you just know uh, my next three are all, all all could be number ones these are three of my favorite movies period not just of this period these would be, make a top 10 of the 80s even with carpenter and king and all that like that's how much i love these next three so uh number three i am still mad at you because you just got a nice version of this that i haven't got yet and that is santa Sangre. uh yes this is just one of my favorite movies i saw it like i was a huge el topo fan very early it's a very important film discovery for me but when i saw this i was like this is even better this is the masterpiece by this director um and it, and it's just a great horror film. It's really like, it's like, as you said earlier, it's a movie you've never seen a movie quite like this before. Um, it's some, I, I always say it's my favorite psycho riff of all the movies that mm-hmm. have ripped off psycho. This is the best. This is the one that most, because it's so original. And so it's a, it's a Fellini esque version of that story. It's a, uh, a boy recollecting um, his time in a circus where his mother and father worked. And his father was an American who um, was living in Mexico, throws knives. And his mother was, I can't remember what his mother was at that, but she was also a religious fanatic who, led this uh, religious group called Santa Holy Blood or Santa Sangre and uh, the dad is having an affair with this tattooed woman who's just seared into my brain from when I saw this young it just as this like monstrous laughing. yeah, sexuality yeah. and just the tats and everything about it was just so intense um, and you know he's following this young boy's watching that relationship coming apart of his parents but also watching his um, this girl who's a mime um, who's got you know kind of a clown drawn face and she's a tight w- rope walker and it's just got this it's this beautiful juxtaposition between innocence and childlike wonder and the most grotesque shit you've ever seen in this opening so it's just hard to shake it because you haven't quite seen it before um anyway uh the, very early in this this will, you know kind of important spoiler uh the the knife throwing man uh, gets so mad at his wife and so over it that he severs both her arms publicly in a very dramatic fashion it's one of the most intense moments i've seen and then then it cuts to like the mental asylum 20 years later and this young boy's grown up and you start to realize that he has basically imagines that he's still in a relationship with his mother that he lives with her and he operates as her arms and so and it's just a really uh it's just an amazing dance what this movie put, yeah it's really something special i yeah.
1: i'm doing the butterfly the, movement the, right yeah, now or the or like or it's the dove the, the doves yeah.
0: yeah um and then there is um a lot of murders and and it's it's you know fascinating. The more I read, a it's a great movie. Like I mean, in terms of beauty and art, I've always said this is by far the best Severin film that they mm-hmm. have. Like I always thought, Dave was so lucky to kind of get this early in their canon because there, to me it really is like the heart of what that company is. Um, and so cool that they put out this beautiful new 4K. I got which I gotta buy. Um, I, I can't let myself not have it. But um, this one. I when I was started to get really into it, and I A, Roger Ebert loved this movie, and Ebert didn't always love this weird stuff. So I always thought that was interesting. Another cool connection produced by Dario Argento's brother, Claudio Argento, which I always thought was wow. cool. Wow. Yeah, so super cool of him to produce this. He produced a lot of cool stuff. Um but the interesting story was that a part of the story was um Jodorowsky, you know, who's the type who would have a story like this, he was in an unemployment office or something in Mexico and he was sitting next to a guy who he starts talking to, and the guy starts basically talking about how he's in a sanatorium and how he had been a serial killer and had murdered a bunch of brides and buried them in his backyard. All of these things were based on the real person he met in that office, and he put those elements into this movie. And and my favorite dream horror imagery of any movie, I think, is these brides coming out of the backyard. It's just such a haunting image, and that comes from... From his mouth as a true story, um, from somebody he randomly met, um, who was like you know totally normal. He said the guy you would never know he was psychotic, and he was just sitting there and recounting what he had done. So whether that's actually true, <laughs> Jodorowsky's a big storyteller too. So, uh, but this is a really special movie, and I don't think Jodorowsky's other movies are actually horror movies. They have horror imagery. This one's mm-hmm. a horror movie with the big H, and it does it all. Um, and wow. yeah, it's it's uh, visionary stuff.
1: So I remember first seeing this because it's on the cover of back in probably the late 90s or early 2000s. There was this series of books called Creation Books, mm. and I have a bunch of them. A lot of them were written by this guy named Jack Sargent, and it was the first place I found a lot of movies. Um, One of his entire books is on the Death Tripping movies, which oh, yeah. were all like the Nick Zed-ish punk films. Oh, I 19- know the
0: series 80s. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yep. Good. And there was one um, that I can't, I think it was just called like Psycho Hypnotic, cinema like it just focused on weird movies and it had a picture of the tattooed woman in the bikini on the knife board on the front cover and I immediately was like what the fuck is that from I have to see it and I sought out the movie after reading about it in that book and just blew my brain i had already seen el topo um but i had not seen holy mountain yet yeah. and this was just this is by far the most beautiful of those like this is just so cinematic it's the most like
0: um because i because i'd still love el topo and i think holy mountain is an amazing experience but this is the most i guess the script and the story make the most sense it's like it's surreal but it you never lose focus of the psychodrama you know and i yeah and that's his other movies i don't think quite have that through line um but yeah no this is a this is a wild freaking movie
1: Yeah, absolutely crazy.
0: So that was my number three. Okay.
1: So my number two is from 1980, and you mentioned it, but it's not on your list. And this is Dario Argento's Inferno.
0: Oh, good. I'm happy. I I mean, you went to this recently together.
1: Yeah, we went to this probably right before the pandemic. I guess it was the Panic Fest right before the uh, six months before
0: yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, oh, or Beyond Fest. Yeah, I think it was Beyond Fest.
1: Yeah, yeah. Beyond Fest. Sorry, Beyond Fest. Yeah. Of all his films, this um, is the
0: one I think that's influenced me the most, like in terms of the stuff I would want to do. Like just the long silent silence of horror sequences is so yep. dreamy.
1: So, like actual look, yeah. I love Suspiria. Yeah. Original Suspiria, like cinematography, color palette, just mise en scène in general. Suspiria will always be my jam. But when it comes to like his set pieces, holy shit, this movie just fucking slaps. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, this is Inferno. Uh, the setup is that there is a college student in Rome with his sister. And all of a sudden these kind of um, killings start happening and they connect them to this coven. That's. Well, know, his
0: si- no, it's had- only, only addition. You're, you're right. But his sister's not with yes, him. She's in the other city. She's,
1: she's in, in the in other city. New York city.
0: and he's yeah. in Rome. Yeah.
1: And so he's constantly telling her yeah, what's exactly, going on, exactly. but he discovers that there is this coven of witches um, that seem to be kind of linking back to his address and it it's all kind of revolving around this apartment building. And the opening scene, which is this in this flooded underground ballroom,
0: yeah, it's, is it's the like most an upside down space almost. It's so cool. that's
1: it exactly. It's, so it's just this. Flooded ballroom in the basement that is just, they're submerged in 10 feet of water trying to recover this key from the floor, but the water's crystal clear and all of the furniture and the decadence and the opulence is underwater with them. And at the same time, you feel this, like, if I remember there's another hand kind of like reaching, there's like a threat that's happening there. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and these wild paintings of witches, like you feel it's like this, this world that was buried and then flooded. And it is beautifully lit. It is just the most highly expensive, I suspect yeah. set piece ever. It's just gorgeous. And then there's um the rat scene where uh, it's a character, kind of an, an ancillary character dies by rats out near the river. And it is just a horrifying yeah, scene. Yeah.
0: That's the part that's actually probably part of that is actually New York. Like most of it's probably mm-hmm. Italy, but I think William Lustig was part of that um, that period of shooting. The stuff shot oh, in New really? York. I think I read that, and also I know Mario Bava helped do the the amazing yes. mirror sequence at the end. So
1: the mirror sequence. So I this is my favorite out of all of yeah. the three mothers films. If I take out kind of the visual element, because again Suspiria, the way that
0: it looks will always and sounds. In my yeah, mind. That, the look and yeah, sound and of that sounds. film is unparalleled. Yeah.
1: But. Plot-wise and actual set pieces, Inferno every day, Um, especially the ending. The ending with the mirror sequence is so goddamn scary. Yeah. Like, this one just pushes the terror so much. Um, I just love Inferno. And this was just such a joy to rewatch in the theater.
0: Of, yeah, of all his films, that's the one I had most dreamed of seeing on the big screen. And so we, we got that chance. It really just, it's it, it's the closest he comes to that what we call, joke around as pure cinema. It's like... It's, yes. You're just watching what movies can do. He Nothing else could show you this. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. so good. Um, Yeah, and the guys, the only weird thing is the dude's like mustache or whatever, but the, the main guy, he looks like, a little funky. He <laughs> reminds me a little bit of the lead actor who I've never loved and even though I love Prince of Darkness by, which actually, maybe that's why he got cast, because if if Carpenter's saying this was his oh, yeah <laughs> maybe he's like, I a like that like, look.
1: A little uh, bit like that. We'll
0: go from your pure cinema Italian movie to my favorite pure cinema Italian movie, which I also knew you love, because it topped our uh, Fulci draft, and that is uh, just one of my favorite horror movies ever made. The Beyond.
1: Higher on my list. Oh,
0: yes. That makes me happy then. Because <laughs> this is like my number one horror movie of all in some ways. Like, this is if I was doing my top 10, but for no real surprise. All I'll I say know about what this your movie, number but,
1: one is
0: yeah. all, I'll, all. Only thing I'll say about this right here is there is a kiwi in it. So there's a kiwi in both my next two movies. That's all I'm going to say. Kiwi <laughs> leads in the Beyond, and kiwi leads in the next one. That's all I'm saying.
1: Well, since your number two is now paused, I'll go to my number yes. one, which is Full Cheese 1981: The Beyond. That's the best movie. This. Is such a great movie. Um, it is a Southern Gothic that takes place in New Orleans, but at the same time, it has these traditional Italian zombie tropes. But at the same time, it feels like you know a Fulci film, and that it's a dreamscape, and you don't know what the fuck is going on, and it's total nightmare logic. And I still can't completely explain every element of the plot to you. The set pieces are just wonderful like just you know how slow everything moves but as soon as there is a murder it kind of ramps up and moves very quickly i love the painting element i love the flooded basement there's a you know scary redhead which is you know just a fun trope that we see throughout horror history but she's really fucking scary in this so go
0: and she'll be fine redhead. i think she'll be fine she's not gonna she'll she be fine. Enough- <laughs> <laughs> a daughter let her watch it she'll be fine
1: That is well that in general when they're like, Oh, her parents are dead, she'll be fine. And then everybody walks away from her and it's like, like, Oh, "Oh,
0: it's Italian. She's not gonna be She's
1: she's gonna lose (laughs) it. And then the acid
0: comes. Yeah. You know, there's funny things that you when you think about like what is horror and why you love horror, that for me it's the something that happens to the redhead girl. But right around that, um, the main character, Katrina McCall, who I just love, I think she's got her back to a plane of glass. And something, mm-hmm. you know, one of the zombies smashes her and like starts pulling her back. And there's something in that moment that I was like, "Oh, that's the feeling I love in horror. It's like surprising, disturbing, and 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 it's you know it's coming, but it's coming and you can't stop it." I I love that about Fulci. So good.
1: This one, um, every single time I rewatch this, I'm uh, frustrated, but like laughably frustrated by the fact that um, they, no one seems to realize that you should shoot them in the head, yeah, no, no. Um, and it's the only thing that works. But literally, like after ten minutes of the final scene, they're still shooting them in the kneecaps. Going, why are they not dying? And then they shoot one in the head, and he dies. And it's just like the. The learning uh, curve is a bit off there. But beautiful yeah. ending as well. This is how you end a fucking horror I film. I think it's you the best walk?
0: final image yeah. of any horror film. And, and almost any movie. Like, in terms of final image, it's as visionary as that shit gets, right? Yes. And the idea that this was, like, what, called Seven Doors to Death and just done as a kind of cheesy B-movie. The, the release of it was so kind of bastardized, I think, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, not as bastardized. I still as
1: America, have... But. I have the original VHS release of the beyond. I have one of the seven doors of death copy and it looks like an old ECW comic where it's, you know very much it looks like it's supposed to be kind of a horror comic it says nothing about the actual film and it doesn't even relate because this was part of his um gates of hell trilogy it does not even relate back to the first film and yeah they're not really a trilogy right
0: like even yeah they're just loosely connected as and i love all of those and they're all 80s i I would put them on the list but this is the one that it just stands up on its own as, as something special i think um
1: some Book of Ebon action. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I didn't know back in the day when I first saw that, that David Warbeck was a Kiwi. And now that I do, it makes me love this movie even more. Um, <laughs> so it's it's very exciting to see him, him uh, leading the film. If only more Kiwis were in bonkers movies. Wait a minute. My number one. Oh, God. Saw it coming. My number one is... I'm trying to think of something funny that I could say instead of this movie, but no, too late possession. Um, (laughs) Andre Zulowski's possession starring New Zealand's own only, I would say, (laughs) <laughs> Sam Neill, uh, straight from Event Horizon, he went into this movie um, twenty years into the future, uh, and Isabella Gianni giving one of the you know most manic, uh, deranged performances ever put on screen ever. Uh, the friend character is really good, Margaret Karstensen, she's from all of um, Fassbender's movies. She's part of his team, and then uh, Mr. Yoga himself, Heinz Bennett, uh, playing the the person she's having an affair with. This is just uh like I don't even want to talk about it too much because it's when I try to even though it's a joke at this point how much I like it. I also am trying to not overwatch it too many times because I want it to always still have that power for me. So I know people think I've seen this a million times, but I've probably only seen it about six times, I think. And wow. one, one was to track down the 80 minute version just to see the differences. Cause I'd never seen that. My first viewing was the correct version back way back in the day. And, um, you know, there's a 130 minute or 125 minute. That's what you want to see. If you find an 80 minute version, you really shouldn't watch it because it cuts out the bulk of a, the editing rhythm, but it also cuts dramatically out the relationship stuff. And that is what this, oh. this is basically, you know, this is um, coming out very close to the same time uh, as another film that was high on my list, which is the brood. And it's a very similar movie. Uh, yeah. Just told on, you know, I, I wrote down it's horror film as a personal screen, you know, it's using a horror film, to disguise pain that somebody's going through. Uh, In real life uh, Zhulowski had been shooting a very difficult film in France and been away from his wife and child for a long time. He came back and found that his wife had checked up with another person and he was just utterly destroyed so he started writing this this pain tribute uh but it's gussied up in the story of a spy you know um sp- played by sam neil who's come back to uh berlin um the wall is up obviously and so there's a lot of that iconography he uh comes to see that his kid is home alone and he's way too young to be home alone and it's like where the hell's your mom and you start to realize that they are at the end of their relationship she's shacked up with somebody he finds the lover but then he also realizes maybe there's another person on top of that. Yeah.
1: Like the lover is not really the he's lover. He's a little anymore. clueless he's too. Like, yeah. He's been. Yeah. He's it. like, no, no, she la- yeah. she moved on from me and
0: doing yoga while he does it. Yeah. Um, and, and when we find out what it is, uh, that's when we enter uh, the uh, primordial fuck monster that uh, is so well known. And I won't, say much more after that because i i find it so fascinating where it goes after that it's just it's pitched at a level that for some people they can't take it because they think it's silly or they think it's over the top i mm-hmm. think that goes away after the first viewing and i think when you see it again you might really you kind of get a little bit more of its roots in the kind of there's a little bit of brick there's a little bit like you just see some of these traditions that are running through this thing i see other films where he's and realize it's part of its style camera work is what really I think grabbed me when I was young when I first started oh, because yeah. it just, it's a very early use of the steady cam and it's going in apartments and through doorways and it's really hypnotic. Um, but there is no film in my life that shaped my taste as an adult more than this. So it's not my kid taste. Like shining was my first, you know, as a kid going, I love these movies. This one changed how I, what I desired and also the kind of movies I want to make. So it, it's, it's a big one. And also J- Johnny, Johnny, uh you know it's still alive uh and so is sam mm-hmm. uh zulowski sadly not and she hasn't said much about this recently she did say something like i could have only it's the kind of movie you could only do when you're young because the director is asking everything of you and all of the darkness and you have to go to a place and i could never have done it again i survived it but only barely like is her wow. reading and sam neill's always said it's actually one of his favorite films he did but he said somebody on it was insane and he would wait till they died to talk about it. And then Zulawski died and he still didn't talk about it. So that leaves one person.
1: Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, she seems like she was being pushed to that point. That's what uh, people
0: say. Like in the in the making of it, it's pretty clear he, he really does. You know, probably by today's standards wouldn't be acceptable directing. I mean, the way we, uh, the profession that has become directing uh, in today's climate isn't what a lot of the results. Even Kubrick now is heavily criticized for the shine. Yes. And, and yet... You know, it's a t- always a Even tough
1: Hitchcock, comment. like what Hitchcock, Hitchcock yeah. did, it was, of yeah. And,
0: awesome. and some of it with Hitchcock's with Tippies is pretty very clear that he's crossing very lines. Bad. But but, yeah. but there's also this, you know, there's the film lover in you that's very hard to not see the results. And and I think it's, for me, it's okay if the person um, allows, if, if Isabella Johnny says, you can push me as far as you want, and they make an agreement before, then I don't have a problem with it. As long as it's when somebody's do, playing mind games with somebody and fucking with them which a lot of great films have done uh i feel definitely not okay about that because it's you know it's very manipulative but you know uh it, it the result in this is like uh, very hard to argue with and it's uh it's you know it's a whole different type of movie so that is my favorite probably my favorite movie <laughs> so uh possession topping the list like you knew it would
1: of course it's going to. No, I love Possession. Actually, one of the first things that we ever did together was go see Possession in 35 millimeter at the Silent Cinema. I actually started
0: thinking way. about that night uh, when I was putting this on the list and going, oh yeah, I remember we went to like... Um uh, what's the diner?
1: Canters. Canters, and Canters. we didn't really know
0: each other, and there's a couple other people, and we're all uh-huh. just talking movies, and I remember it just set the scene, and I knew a lot of people who were going to this had never seen it, so I was super yep. excited to see what the reaction would be. And I had never seen it on screen. I'd only seen it on
1: Yeah, the- I'd only ever DVD. seen the VHS copy. I'd never even seen DVD. Yeah. I'd only ever seen the VHS copy, and the VHS copy that I'd seen was so dark, you were never really able to
0: Especially see the, the monster. monster. No, yeah, that, and, and, and yeah. it kind of works being dark, of course, because mm-hmm. you know it's meant to be otherworldly, but, um, and, and the one uh, Last thing I'll say about is Carlo Rimbaldi made the monster, and it's just amazing because that's the same time he's making ET. So yeah, and well, of, he
1: ended up reusing parts of it in Cameron's closet, right? Oh, he
0: might have. Yeah, he might have done. I didn't even know that. Um,
1: I, I need to. I need to rewatch Cameron's Closet. I'd always heard the rumor that they were kind of like repurposed parts.
0: I did hear um, that Zuleski, because he, you know, that uh, Carlo didn't come to Italy. They he basically what I heard because you know when you watch a movie you you're like the director's vision of this monster it's like a penis valve. Uh he said he opened the crate and he cried because it was not what he had no vision of a penis monster he just looked in like what the fuck are we going to do with this thing and then he had to make it work and I'm just like that's hilarious because it seems symbolic it seems to tie into the narrative but he was very yeah. shocked at what Rimbaldi had sent him at the time I think so uh, just goes to show movies sometimes are happy accidents yeah. Um, anyway, that that was super fun because these are some of our favorite movies. I know we yes. love all movies, but this, you know, there's so many great horror films made in other countries uh, that if you're not looking, then you, you're you're missing so much good stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm excited to do this with the 90s as well, because that is where a lot of the international films, because horror was kind of in a slump here in the 90s, supposedly, I think that as soon as we start doing our list, we're going to prove that there's actually some really good horror coming out in the 90s. Um, But because it was already getting kind of marginalized here in the States, the international stuff that was getting released in the 90s got no play here stateside. I feel Um, like that would be our least
0: predictable list, our 90s, for some reason, just Mm because I even off the top of my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, what would be? on that list that'll be fun we'll do we'll wait till you know we're gonna finish those and we'll go back to our normal thing for a while but yeah um, but yeah 90s will be fun so I
1: got some topics I want to cover like I've been thinking about killer cars a lot lately right. and I was like we need to do like what a killer car fun. one I mean we um, also it have a few you weeks to off in C-
0: summer though so you know
1: yeah you're seeing duel tomorrow night and so I was like yes. yeah that's kind of you know it got me thinking that'll about be
0: my first cars. movie back in a proper movie thi- well proper it's a uh, secret cinema but it, uh, yeah seeing that I'm very excited I've only seen it I in-
1: was thinking we should season. do a summer camp episode where we talk about summer camp horrors. We got a lot to cover here is what I'm saying. So
0: let's keep on chugging. Um, But very cool. That was a fun one. And uh, thanks to our uh, sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado.
1: Thank you. And we will be back uh, next week. We will be back with deep cuts and more crazy weird films on our Patreon show. Um, And then the week after that, we will be back doing our favorite franchise horrors of the 1980s, a big discussion on kind of what franchises were in the 1980s and an awesome interview with a 1980s director icon. So thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado.